The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back! It's one out. Pete Alonso, he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. I hope everybody is well. And yes, this is A's Cast Live, and we have a unbelievable show for you today as we're going to have some baseball legends on today. First, we're going to have on Paul Himbikides, Hembo from ESPN, the top producer and researcher at ESPN at 130, who's a part of Get Up and also Buster Only's podcast, Baseball Tonight. And Hembo, unfortunately, doesn't get to talk all the baseball that he wants to talk because ESPN wants to talk football and LeBron James. And I guarantee now they're consumed with the NFL draft. So this is like his release as he is a baseball fan by, you know, this is the number one thing for him is baseball. So Himbo will be back here on a Monday. Baseball legend, two-time World Series champion and World Series MVP, Rick Dempsey, the longtime catcher, will be here at 2.30 and breaking down a lot of different things. But probably the most fascinating thing is how he thinks you can speed up baseball. And, of course, we've been breaking down every single division. We're now in the AL East. We'll talk very little Baltimore Orioles because, Cody, by the way, good to see you, Cody. Good to hear from you. Your Orioles stink. They won 54 games last year, but that's an improvement. <laughs> But that's an improvement over 2018. We only won 40. I'm going to say we now. We only won 47 games in 2018. So that's a vast improvement under now second-year manager, entering his second year, Brandon Hyde, pride of Santa Rosa, once former coach under Joe Madden with the Chicago Cubs. 25-56 and 56 at home, 29-52 and 52 on the road. Who has more road wins than home wins? Apparently the Orioles how many, do. How many times? You know what, seriously, how many times has that ever happened in the history of the game that you won more games on the road than at home? Uh, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure I can think, say that I'm sure during one of the 20 consecutive losing seasons for my beloved Pirates, they won more games on the road at least once. But it doesn't happen very often. And also with the Orioles, as we're talking about them quickly, they have the lowest payroll in baseball at $46 million. Yeah, it's uh, you want you want to tear it down to the studs. Uh, they're doing that, you know. And actually, Chris Davis, who once was one of the best power hitters in the game, who just completely fell off, and it was embarrassing last year. He was having a good spring training, so you hate to see someone struggle like that. That is just tough to watch. At three o'clock, then we'll have baseball legend Tommy John. Tommy John. Obviously, you all know him from the surgery, but he's truly one of the great pitchers of all time. 288 wins and the famous surgery. 
He was hurt in 19 that he hurt the elbow in 1974. As we continue to relive the 1974 World Series, where Ken Korak and I will be back tomorrow night at 7:30 for the legendary moments pregame show presented by Budweiser to break down game four of the 1974 World Series, which of course you can hear here on A's cast or you can watch on NBC Sports California. And the A's would win, wait for it, another three to two, so many three to two. It'd be the third straight three to two game. Catfish goes seven and a third. Raleigh Fingers goes an inning and two thirds. Campy and Joe Rudy at RBIs. And the A's win this one three to two. And it's going to be a lot of fun to watch tomorrow night. So make sure you watch it on NBC Sports California. Monty Moore will be on the broadcast. But if you want to turn it down and, and watch on television and still listen to A's cast, you're going to be hearing Vin Scully. So you cannot lose. But we'll be breaking that down tomorrow at 7.30. First pitch is going to be at 8 o'clock. And unbelievable. Another 3-2 to two ball game. And the thing that I've really enjoyed about these games is the names the great players. I, it really is unbelievable. I mean, just the Hall of Famers and the All-Stars, and you can add up the MVPs. Because the Mets series, as we as we talked about, the Mets lineup was terrible. Like, I don't know. The majority of the guys, I'm like, who? I know I always joke on who, but I, this was a legit, I, I don't know who these guys are. I mean, you know who Willie Mays was, but Willie Mays was 42 years old. This Dodger team, these guys are stacked, and the A's are taking it to them. And that's why it is so much fun to watch. And knowing the the backstory about how the Dodgers were lipping off before the series, basically saying, oh, that lineup? Only Reggie Jackson could play in our lineup. And some of that may be true, but when you have the pitching and the defense and Dick Green defensively in this series was uh, incredible. To talk about second base, you know, that'd be something that, you know, when you look at Hembo or Sarah Langs, these great researchers in baseball, did anyone play better defense at second base in a World Series ever than Dick Green? I mean, this guy was looked at as potential, the World Series MVP, and he didn't even get a hit. Not one. Back then, they had a thing called the Babe Ruth Award. He won an award in this series, and he didn't get one stinking hit because his defense was so good. So much respect for what these guys did in the 70s. And that's something that you're going to hear today from Rick Dempsey and you're going to hear today from Tommy John, guys who played against this A's team, this dynasty, and just how good they really were. And I know we've talked a lot about this, but the more we watch and the more we observe, 
the more appreciation for Raleigh Fingers you continue to have. And I think you can say Catfish Hunter also. Pitching and defense still to this day wins championships. And that's what this team did back in the 70s. I mean, you think about a team that won three straight World Series, had two different managers. I mean, everything that we know and love about these clubs is such craziness that you'd never see today. Your owner is your GM. Your owner doesn't live in town. Owner can't even watch the game. He's a GM and can't even watch games. Can you imagine that? The guy that's calling the shots can't watch the game. And really has no no front office. You going to say something, Cody? No, I would say it's pretty remarkable. The only only time we've ever heard of a a GM not watching a game is the joke for Moneyball when Billy says, I don't watch the games. How many other times you ever hear a GM go, yeah, I don't don't watch the game last night. Did we win? What was the score? You're not even in the same state? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, think about that. Then again, how many times have you seen an owner that was a general manager? Just like when Billy says in Moneyball, how many times have you seen a player, a GM that was a player? So, it, how many times have you seen an owner in baseball, professional sports overall, that was a player? Well, besides Michael Jordan with the Bull or with the Hornets, but uh, they're not really doing anything. How many other times have you seen a guy that was a an owner that was a GM? Uh, that's what I meant. Owners that was a GM. Al Davis, Jerry Jones. Yeah, those are like the only those are only two, and they're legends in in the NFL. Jerry Jones conducting the draft from his yacht. That was that was pretty cool. I'm not gonna lie, him being there and McCarthy being wherever McCarthy was. Who cares? He wasn't the star. Jerry Jones was the star of, of the what star, it was the star of the draft, the Husky, <laughs> by Bill Belichick. It was either that or Cliff Kingsbury's living room. I don't know if you saw that image floating around Twitter of just the living room he had and like everyone, especially Kyler Murray. He's like, I I want I aspire to have or no, it's Pat Mahomes. That's the MVP and Super Bowl champion, Pat Mahomes. Uh, I want to have a I want to have a backyard like like Cliffs because he's just sitting there with his feet up on his table with monitors and a huge TV and this beautiful backyard with a sliding glass door in Arizona. It's Arizona. Yeah, it's Arizona. <laughs> All right, it's not Beverly Hills. It's Arizona. It's not that expensive. That's what, I, that's what I've heard. I, I don't know. I'm not a homeowner yet, but I've heard it's not expensive there. Yeah, it's uh, it's gone up, but yeah, our prices here in the Bay Area are superior to that. You know, I know people made it. Oh, look at that. It's Arizona. By the way, outside, it's over 100 degrees. Have fun with that. Yeah, it's 100 degrees for like a week there now. Yeah, you you, you want to live in 115? Have fun with that. For months. Have you had to crack the air conditioner on in your in your studio yet? My my, 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 my working conditions have not changed yet. Okay, yeah. I, we've, we actually turned the air conditioning on here in our working conditions because – we keep the back door open, and I don't know if you can see it, but we have a back door for our dog to go out and on the balcony. But once it's open for longer periods of time during the day, it gets hot in here, so I have to turn the AC on because everyone starts complaining that it's too warm. So I have not had to crack the AC yet here in the uh, South Bay A studios, uh, in the home or out in the actual studio. If you're just joining us for the first time, as you know, it gets hot down here in the South Bay and the working di- conditions for Cody were so tough 
that I had to go to Home Depot and buy a $500 air conditioner to keep him satisfied so he wouldn't be complaining to HR about his tough working conditions. It, it was it was really like I, I, like now we can look back. It's been almost a year since we've been doing this. Just thinking of how when we first started, when we didn't have the air conditioner and how the times have changed since then. We were in there. It was like it was like a like a sauna because I remember going. Home, I didn't have to go home and take a shower because it's how hot, how warm it got. Especially it's the middle well, of summer I, in San Jose. So what do you expect? <laughs> I mean, you know, and, I've, and I thought about that because my old house that I had, the sun never hit where my my studio was, so I I never needed an air conditioner. This this actually definitely changed. All right, so there was an article yesterday. I found fascinating that when you think of the names of these guys and to think there's one accomplishment that they never did, you, you really, you really go, I mean, I was shocked. I mean, these are the, the greatest names in the history of the game. You'd think they all would have this on their resume and they don't. We'll talk about it next right here on A's Cast Live. Streaming from the town, A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend. You know, yesterday, MLB Network put this out, and I know a lot of people are probably not paying attention, and we totally understand. That's why we're here. Probably a lot of people watching the news or watching Netflix. Uh, we're staying up on everything that is baseball. And Anthony Castrovince, friend of the program, put out a list of great pitchers to have never thrown a no-hitter. And the, and, and the names, it's shocking. Number one. By the way, Cody, when you looked at this list, were were, were you stunned by the names? I was, especially one, especially number one, and because I always figured, you know, he had multiple games of, well, I'm not going to give it away, but multiple double-digit strikeout games that he's only got to ever do that. Uh, and then the other guys on the list, including number five, who's an older guy, uh, it's remarkable to know none of them have ever had a no-hitter. Yeah, Roger Clemens won 354 games. He had 4,672 strikeouts. He won seven Cy Youngs and an MVP. He twice struck out 20 batters in a game, which is tied for the record. He had one hitters, but in his 24-year career, Roger Clemens did not throw a no-hitter. I I was just... I. I mean, you look back, yes, we never saw it. I mean, again, I got to see all of Roger Clemens' career. It, 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 it blew my mind. Roger Clemens never threw a no-hitter. Number two on the list. The guy was some of the nastiest stuff you have ever seen. Pedro Martinez. Like, you would think someone like Pedro Martinez... The guy who was the most dominant pitcher during the steroid era in the American League. Like his numbers versus all other pitchers, unbelievable. How about your guy, Cody? 
Greg Maddox, the guy that did throw complete games, the guy did have shutouts. They called it a Maddox. Under 100 pitches and and a complete game. Are, are you shocked, Greg Maddox? I, I mean... Yeah, very much. Uh, I mean, master of all control. That I mean, that's the argument you can make for it because he was more of a guy to pitch the contact and wanted to get the corners. But with him, the thirteen career Maddoxes, the hundred pitches or less for a shutout. Because I get driven crazy when people say complete game shutout because a shutout is a complete game. But yeah, him being the pitcher he was, a contact guy where he wanted to induce weak ground balls. It, it makes sense, but still, I mean, the guy was one of the greatest. For me, growing up watching him, because I watched Clemens as he was older, uh, Maddox is the greatest pitcher I've watched. And for him to never have one is remarkable. But I think Pedro and Roger Clemens are a little more shocking to me, especially Pedro, because how dominant he was from what, from what, 99 to 04, where he always had like the lowest whip in baseball and the strikeouts and everything. And, you know, Roger Clemens has, what, 4,500 career strikeouts. Uh, Those three guys are special. The other one, too, and this is before your time, but Lefty was as good as anybody that you've ever seen in the game. And you would compare his slider was just unhittable. It was the great Steve Carlton, the Hall of Famer. He had six one-hitters and not one no-hitter. 329 wins. Only Warren Spawn has more. Four Cy Young Awards. I mean, Steve Carlton was the gold standard. Because obviously Warren Spawn was, hell, Warren Spawn played with my grandfather. I mean, this is going back to the, the 40s and the 50s. I mean, Steve Carlton, what he did through the 70s and the 80s. I, so hard to believe that these guys, we're talking about the most dominant pitchers of all time and not one out of no hitter. The fifth guy is Grover Alexander, obviously a little before our time. Those are your top five pitchers to have never thrown a no hitter. Number one, Roger Clemens. Number two, Pedro Martinez. Number three, Greg Maddox. Number four, Steve Carlton. Number five, Grover Alexander. And they talk about the pitchers that have. No hitters. And they include our guy, Mike Fires. They go Bobo Holloman, Iron Davis, no idea. Mike Fires. They put up these pitchers that have thrown no hitters. Mike Fires has two. That's what's crazy is he has two. And, you know, one with the Astros and obviously one with the A's. And the one last year against the Reds. And, you know, it made me think, uh, do you have – a? Because I always think of one guy when I think of no hitters. Do you have a guy you've seen throw a no hitter on TV or in person that's like the most obscure no hitter of all time? Because I have a guy that I remember th- watching throw a no hitter that probably no one remembers or remembers even who he is. Have I seen it live? No, or you just watch it on TV? Because I watch it on TV, obviously, because it happened. It happened in two thousand one. Guy named Dallas Braden. Um, yes, he threw a perfect game. But yes, I know. I know that one. You ever heard of a guy named Mike Fires? I got one that trumps all of them because uh, the guy didn't really do anything in his major league career. That'd be in 2001, Cardinals rookie Bud Smith throw. Who? Yeah. Bud Smith threw a no-hitter against your and Bob Townsend's San Diego Padres. 2001, Bud Smith was a rookie. He became the 18th rookie since 1900 to throw a no-hitter. That was back on the date. 
and they beat the Padres 4 nothing. He gave up four walks, but he allowed no hits while throwing 134 pitches in the game. Can I give you a Pedro Martinez story? Uh, and any Pedro story is great. And you can look this up. It was summertime, so I was back home from school, and I went to a Padre game with my father and one of my best friends, the great A.J. Layton, if he's listening, because he does live here in the Bay Area now. We watched the Expos against the Padres. It was Pedro Martinez against Joey Hamilton. Do you remember Joey Hamilton? The name rings a bell, but I, I, if you ask me to look, tell you what he looks like, I probably couldn't tell you. They both had a no-hitter. I think Joey gave it up in the eighth inning. Pedro had a nine-inning no-hitter, but the game went extra innings. And then he ended up giving up a hit, either like in the 10th or the 11th, and didn't get credit for the no-hitter. So I've actually, with my own eyes, seen Pedro Martinez throw nine innings of no-hit baseball, but he didn't get credit for it. I'm, I was looking up right now because I remember looking at this. I think it was yesterday I was reading this story. He went, uh, what, he went nine innings. It was a perfect game, right? And But it went to extra innings. And he lost it. What year was that? I think it was ninety. It was nineteen ninety-five. Yeah, not June third, nineteen ninety-five. That would have been my senior year at San Jose State. Do you know who broke up the perfect game? Couldn't tell you. Uh, let's see. He hurled this amazing game that only earned a simple win upon its completion due to a tenth inning Bip Roberts line drive down the right field line. The great That's Bip Roberts. Guy. Great Bip Roberts. <laughs> Bip Roberts ruined the perfect game for Pedro. <laughs> Get the Bipster on. Let's reminisce. <laughs> it was one of the greatest games I've ever seen. It was like, well, h- how many innings did Joey Hamilton go without giving up? It was like, I think, eight innings. Uh, let me see, because the baseball almanac has the Hamilton went, well, it says he went nine innings along three runs. Uh, it doesn't have the full box score. Yeah, he. I think he. I think he went like seven or eight innings of no hit baseball. I think it was eight. I think he went eight innings without allowing hit of I. Yeah, I, I'm. I'll see if I can find it. But yeah, it was June third, nineteen ninety five. I was in the stands. I saw that game, and I always thought, what a sham that is that a guy throws nine innings and then has the guts to then keep going. And you don't get credit for a no-hitter. And I didn't realize it was a perfect game. So he threw a perfect game for nine innings and didn't get credit. Yep, because he gave up the uh, – because it went to extra innings. And then uh, our guy, Bip Roberts, breaks it up. I remember – We're going to – have you seen the story yet on MLB.com about the uh, A's minor leaguer who bat flips his wife? Uh, I I read the headline, but I I didn't get a chance to read the article yet. Yeah, it's on Instagram. Uh, Noah Vaughn. I'm looking at it right now because I can't play the video because if I play the video, it, I, I don't know what the video – so you would hear it because the way we're set up. So we have to wait inside the commercial break. But supposedly an A's minor leaguer does a Joey Batista <laughs> on his wife. I cannot wait to watch this and hear this. And if there's not any uh, – we got to see if there – what the uh, what the verbiage is like inside the video before we can actually play it for you? You know, I went back and looked too. There's a uh, there was a perfect game that almost happened in 2001, the same year that uh, Bud Smith 
who only pitched two years in the majors through his no-hitter. Mike Mussina, I remember watching it with the Yankees, had a perfect game into the ninth inning with one out. The great Carl Everett breaks it up. Mussina was close to being the fourth Yankee to have a perfect game, and it got broken up. I remember that one as well. Yeah, so, yeah well, they have the uh, they have the others here, you know, outside the top five. Mussina's one. I mean, it's Hall of Famers. Fergie Jenkins, Lefty Grove, Don Sutton, uh, Kid Nichols, Three Finger Brown, Eddie Plank, Robin Roberts, Don Drysdale, that's surprising because he threw hard. Uh, Whitey Ford, chairman of the board, and early win. All Hall of Famers without a no-no. Mucina, Jenkins, Lefty Grove, Sutton, Nichols, Three Finger Brown, Eddie Plank, Robin Roberts, Don Drysdale, the chairman, and early win. Also guys going to be in the Hall of Fame, uh, Kurt Schilling and CC Sabathia. I was just reading about Schilling right now. 07. Oh, 70 who, is the, who is the best active pitcher without a no-no? Uh, oh, um, without even looking, I'm going to go with my guy, Mr. Future Hall of Famer, the great Zach Greinke. Because the he doesn't best. care. Because he doesn't care about a no-hitter. Remember? He doesn't care. <laughs> Coming up next, we'll check in with Himbo right here on A's Cast Live. Hi, this is Ramon Laureano. And the throw is going to be in time at the plate. Luriano firing a strike all the way on the line. And you're listening to Ace Cast, your 24-7 destination for Ace Baseball. All right, so I've looked into this. Noah Vaughn, who doesn't, he doesn't play for the A's anymore, but his wife was like a star softball pitcher for Texas A&M and the SEC, which is always weird to talk about Texas A&M and the SEC, long-time Big 12, Big 8. Um, she throws this heater in there, and he just ropes it and has the Joey Batista bat flip, and it's gone viral. It's been a lot of fun to watch because she throws she throws some serious heat. And he just absolutely crushes it. You know who also crushes it is the great Himbo, Paul Hemikides, coming to you live. Uh, would... <laughs> of course, we 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 bill him as top researcher and producer for ESPN. Himbo, how that, are that you? That intro is always way overdone, um, but it's always good to see your face. And after my hiatus last week and prep, you know, preparing in earnest for the NFL draft, I'm finally happy we're getting back you know getting back to brass tacks so it's good to see your face as always and back to baseball even though you know really nothing is happening (laughs) Uh, I I find it funny this was the first time I was actually talking to my boss Matt Pearl from for here for the name drop it 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 literally is over 20 years the last time I didn't do an actual draft show this is the first time I haven't been affiliated either with the Raiders or just doing an NFL draft show and just to sit back and watch it and not having to prepare for it and just watching it as a fan, it's like so ridiculous that they make every guy look like he's a great player, right? I mean, it's like he's a six-round wide receiver at SMU. Well, I love the way he comes out of his cuts, and I love the way da, 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 da. I'm like, if he's that great, why do you go in the sixth round? You know, they're valuing the sixth round. I get it. But they make ESPN or the NFL Network, and they all combine uh, this year, they make every guy look like, oh, what a pick this guy is. Um, I'm cynical naturally like you are. I will say this. Like when you're when you're 
you know, sort of selling the guy, these these guys to the public and to their fan bases. Like these are like even you know, there's 250 picks or whatever it is. Like these are the best that college has to offer, at least among the upperclassmen. So in some sense, like they they were all good, if not great, college football players. But I'm with you. Like I start poking holes in some of these guys, like in the first round. So the fact that you know Mel and my buddies over there can make you know a six rounder sound like he's going to go to the Hall of Fame someday is, is is not is not that easy to do. But generally speaking, this year I enjoyed it, and given the fact that we didn't have anything else to discuss over the last few weeks, like we were really building up to this as a Raider guy, though. I, I want to know what you think of their first round, especially Henry Ruggs at 12. Like that was as an Eagles fan, the guy that I wanted. Yeah. I, you know, I, he's getting criticized because there was other guys on the board that people thought were a better wide receiver, but the one thing he did at Alabama, he scored touchdowns. He could go get it. He, yeah. His average touchdown last year was 37 yards and the Raiders wide receivers last year could not have been worse in terms of stretch, stretching the field vertically. So I don't know. He's never going to be a high volume pass catcher like a Michael Thomas, but those guys don't, I don't need those guys as my wide receivers. Now I have tight ends and running backs that can get me eight yards at a time. Give me someone that can get me 30. Ruggs is that guy. Yeah. I was watching, what was it Saturday? And I couldn't believe I don't know, was it in the fifth round or the sixth round. It's like, it's like, I feel like I could be a general manager. They took a punter. Someone took the punter from Texas A&M. I'm like, you drafted a punter? Like, <laughs> like, who drafts a punter? That was there sometimes, sometimes I'm reminded that those guys aren't geniuses and that we probably are in some sense like astute fans because like th- drafting is such an inexact science. Like I, I'm one who actually believes that the player development portion of this is a lot more important than the draft. Like the player dev people matter a lot more than the, than the, than the scouts and the evaluators that – contribute to the draft because like these guys are all coming in. Like you said, they're making these six rounders sound like Hall of Famers. There's probably a reason why they were, why they were drafted at all. It's the player dev people within these organizations that I think really give you your bang for your buck. And that's why the Patriots have been so good. They don't draft well at all. And they turn something out of nothing seemingly every year, especially on defense. Yeah. You know, uh, the Raiders drafted a punter recently by the name of Johnny Townsend, which I was like, I can now get a Townsend jersey. I was so excited. Uh, yeah, he stunk. And I'm like, John Gruden, what the hell are you doing? Uh, some of these, some of these drafts are, are just that. so. But that is one of the things I think for for baseball, and we're hearing the NBA going to start practicing here on May 1st. We know the PGA Tour is going to start up. When you start seeing the television ratings. Day one, 15.6 million people, an all-time record. Uh, wouldn't you say everybody is looking at that number going, wow, look how starved people are for professional sports. And the minute you open up, you're going to – whatever the sport is, you're going to have record ratings. You're in the television business. Whoever's first is going to end up really reaping the benefits of it. And I think if the draft is any indication, it's that the television audience does not at all suffer from a lack of, like, personalized experience. Like, in terms of the event, like I was in Nashville last year for the draft. It was a block party. It was insane. Like, but that didn't, that like obviously didn't make any sort of effect when, you know, Goodell's in his basement with a bunch of people cheering inside of his television screen. Right. So like, it obviously doesn't affect the viewer at home. I think what, the, what we can learn from the NFL, like you said, is that we can do these things moving forward indefinitely without fans in the stands and not worry at all that the, the ratings aren't going to be good. And especially for, for a league like major league baseball, like I, I guess for all, all the major sports leagues really is they're not nearly as reliant on the stadium experience for, for the experience for one, and also for the revenue as, as colleges, right? So the college football season I think is in peril, but just to provide some perspective from baseball, major league baseball earned nearly $11 billion last year. And only 30% of that was from ticket sales, 30%. Like it is not a huge 
piece of the pie. And overall attendance is down about 15% since its peak in 2007. So this might actually provide baseball and other leagues a chance to capitalize on what the, the modern viewer wants. And, you know, this might be the way that we're watching sports for the next year or two for starters. And also, given the fact that baseball has sort of lost its lost its sort of grasp on the in-stadium experience, you know, 12 million fans over the course of 12 years, it's a lot of fans to lose. Maybe they can use this opportunity to really sort of guess and check what works from home. And maybe you can sort of captivate your audience that way, because that's probably the future, at least the immediate future. All righty. Trivia time. Can't that was just wait. a formality. You asked me one question. Now we're getting that. Now, this is this is this is why you have me on every week. This is, this is <laughs> Good deal, man. So I was told that you guys are celebrating the 72 through 74 teams. Is that right? Yeah. What, what year were you born? I was born in the year 1990. You were born in 90? I was born in 1990. Was that older or younger than you expected me to be? I graduated from high school in 1990. <laughs> I've been telling you, know, because all these years doing the A's, I've had people come up to me and go, oh, yeah, the 70s seems. I'm like, I was born in 72. I didn't watch these games. I mean, like, kind of like the first, I, 78, really 79 was when, put it this way, it was the Orioles and the Pirates. And then it was the Steelers and the Rams in the Super Bowl. Those are when I first, and then the Raiders yeah. taking on the Eagles was my first Super Bowl party. That's kind of when I started watching sports. So, uh, have you realized doing your research how great the A's were in the seventies? Yes, it, it is. It was a delight. I'm glad I spent the last couple of days digging into this a little bit for you guys. And I have prepared once again five trivia questions with varying degrees of difficulty. And we're going to see how you do, my friend. Okay. Let's do this. <laughs> I'm not afraid. No, you're not. Um, not at all. Uh, question number one. The A's were actually the third winningest team in Major League Baseball during the 72 through 74 regular seasons. The third winningest team. Which two teams during that span owned a better regular season record? I would say the Reds. That is correct. The Reds owned the best record in baseball during that time. And it's either going to be the Orioles or the Dodgers. Um, Dodgers was still young at that point. I'm going to go Orioles. The Orioles is incorrect. The correct ah. answer is your initial gut, which is the Dodgers. So during during that span, the Reds owned a win percentage of 611, the Dodgers 590, and the A's 578. Fourth on that list is the Orioles. <laughs> so you definitely nailed that question. You just look, you do what everyone does on my show, not trust your gut. And you end up getting it wrong as a result of that. I don't know why I had that effect on people. So we just had on the great Steve Garvey. Oh, is that right? And, you know, looking at the Garves numbers, I mean, six times over 200 hits, MVP. You look at what he did in the post, his postseason numbers from LA to San Diego. You look at, I mean, I just, I just, he, he he still holds the record for most consecutive games played in the National yeah. League. I'm like, how's he not in the Hall of Fame? I think I think the what about Harold Baines like argument is going to go for a lot of guys, but he is especially one who I think that's going to apply for. There, there's only there's only let's see here, 18 players in the history of Major League Baseball with six 200 hit seasons, and he did it obviously much you know more recently than most of those guys. Uh, in addition to his his. Uh, his postseason success, and he seems like the kind of guy, I guess, that would get some love from some of these committees. But uh, you know, up to this point, he's not—he's not—he's not had that kind of luck. And you've done a lot on Hall of Fame, and we're going to have him on later on today. Uh, a guy that's got 288 wins, over 180 no decisions, 
and it's the most famous surgery of all time. We're going to have Tommy John on. And I'm thinking that's a, that's a good get. How has ha, ha, Tommy John not in the Hall of Fame? Tommy John's another, Tommy John suffers from the sort of uh, like sort of the Jim Cott syndrome where like he was just really good for a really long time. He only received Cy Young votes in four, you know, four of 26 seasons in which he pitched four. So like he's not someone who obviously ever was considered among the greatest during his time. I think the reason that he has a good chance in my judgment, or at least should, is the fact that is, the, is because of the surgery. Like that's like that the impact that that had on baseball is incalculable so like though he wouldn't go in as a contributor that would definitely be on the plaque someday should he go in all right number two 50 50 on the first one so in the year 1974 catfish hunter won 25 games and the cy young award my question for you who is the last pitcher to win 25 games in a big league season bob welch Bob Welch is correct. Ice, ice in your veins, kid. Bob Welch, 27-6 and six in the year 1990. From what I recall, there are some who believe that he should not have won the Cy Young that year, though, correct? Who would have won? In 90? Didn't Dave Stewart have, if I'm not mistaken? Let me pull up that yeah, ballot he real quick. Games too, yeah. Yeah. I want, I want to say, like, Welch was the beneficiary of a t- – like, obviously, you can't win 27 games without the run support. But let, me, let me check out that ballot because I remember p- – People arguing that. So let's see. So yeah, Clemens finished second that year. So <laughs> with 20, 27 wins, but Bob Welch only produced 2.9 wins above replacement. Obviously, that was not a stat at the time. Roger Clemens, 10.4 war, <laughs> finished second. And then Dave Stewart, uh, 22 and 11 that year, finished third on the ballot. Stu won 20 games four straight years. Yeah, he was a stud, a dog, man. <laughs> a really underrated pitcher in my judgment. All right. All right. Well done. That was that seemed that seemed like a little bit of a layup for you. Okay, so this one will be a little trickier. I'm going to ask you for a few names. The 1974 A's are actually the last American League team to have three players finish in the top four of the MVP voting. So three A's that year finish in the top four of American League MVP voting. Who were those three players? One will be Reggie Jackson. He finished fourth in the voting that year. <sighs> I need to – how many? Three? Three of these guys in 74. Catfish? Catfish finished sixth in the voting. They had two guys that finished ahead of him and ah. Reggie. You're missing the guy who, who was the runner-up and the guy who finished third. Raleigh Fingers? No. <laughs> Joe Rudy? Joe Rudy finished American League MVP runner-up in the year 1974. You're missing the guy who was third. Who's third? I have Sal Bando? Sal Bando is correct. Can you believe that ballot? <laughs> That's unbelievable. Can you believe that? So Bando finished. How many games were in the top ten? So you had you had two Rudy, three Bando, four Reggie, six Catfish, uh, and then you had Raleigh who finished sixteenth uh, in the voting that year. So that that team was absolutely stacked. <laughs> Bando finished finished fourth in the voting in seventy three, and then finished and, and finished third in the voting. In 74, these guys are forgotten in history. In my, like they were a part of a dynasty and those guys are real sort of a footnote in history, in my opinion. If, if Charlie Finley doesn't break up that team, we have argued and some people have agreed there may never be a big red machine because once Charlie Finley broke them up, then they won. They won in 75 and 76. Yeah. If they, if, and remember all these A's guys, when they broke up, they were in their prime. So do we ever even have a big red machine if the A's get broken up? It's like it's like they say in uh, in Chicago, like minimum eight Pete, my friend. If 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 Jordan didn't retire and they didn't have all those problems, like I, I, we're viewing the A's 
in that in that case, the same way we're viewing the Yankees of the 30s and the 50s and you know the late 90s. Like that's not hyperbole to say. Yeah. By the way, you know this last dance. You know, we've been talking about how dysfunctional the A's were at this point. They were dysfunctional winners. You forget how dysfunctional the Chicago Bulls were back in the 90s. Well, every single great team, I mean, and all these dynasties, with the exception of the Patriots, really, and the Spurs, I guess, all have these big egos. And it's a matter of just managing them for as long as you possibly can. That's why I think it's amazing what the Patriots have done over the last two decades. It was amazing what the Spurs did over those two decades. But those are really the exceptions. Like, these things don't ever last that long. Like, history is like – like what you know, what happens to the Beatles happens to you know the you know sports teams too. Like it just happens always. The egos are too big in the room. Is Jordan as great now if he played versus what he was in the nineties? Would he be as great? My opinion is that Michael Jordan would average forty points a game now because the 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 way that not only the increased pace like if you just adjust for pace I did this for Greeny the other day if you adjust just for pace he would average nearly thirty five a game just just assuming the numbers across the board are going to translate just for pace but when you also add into account that he didn't really shoot threes at all like in the in the, in the volume three point shooting now is what sort of drives the game like I think it's very clear that he would have. Like he has a real chance to average forty points in the, in today's game with, with the addition of the threes and the lack of the hand checking, right? So like that's like he, he was going two by two, Michael Jordan was, and like went to the foul line a lot, but not an extraordinary amount. If he's getting fouled like James Harden and shooting threes like Harden and, and Steph Curry, Michael Jordan would average forty points a game fairly efficiently in the NBA today, I think. Yeah, and I think the other guy too. If you if you looked it up, Larry Bird, if he played today with no defense. And now he's shooting 10 to 13 threes again. Because back in his heyday, when the three-point line came, he was shooting like one a game. Mm-hmm. He is arguably the great. I mean, we now talk about Steph Curry being the greatest shooter. But if if Larry Bird, at his size, and he played today shooting threes, I, I think Bird's averaging well over 30 a game. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he was an assassin. Michael Jordan never averaged more than a three and a half per game his career uh and larry bird came into the league with that kind of range and it just didn't matter at the time so and, and basketball history is funny because like the three-point line has not even been around for that long like that's like there's and as soon as it was implemented you see an immediate shift like the like for, for most of basketball history big men won the mvp award and since the implementation of the three-point line it's happened very rarely and Shaq is the last traditional back to the basket player to win the award and that was 20 years ago yeah, I always joke, like, if you put people in a time machine and you go back when Wilt was playing and you think of Russell, and if you would have told them, hey, listen, uh, years from now, there's going to be this line that goes from the baseline over the top of the key back to the baseline, and these little guys are going to dominate the game, and you big men are going to almost be insignificant unless you actually go out there and shoot from this line. It's called a three-point line. If you went back in time and told these guys this, because it was always the shot closest to the basket is more important, they 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 call you crazy. It's crazy. It, it would be – I mean, honestly, though, I don't know that it would be that much different than if you told someone playing in the dead ball era that someday – the MVP of the league could hit 250 in Major League Baseball. Like, like it's it's not that different. I mean, I think the, the evolution has changed, right? But like, if you had told Ty Cobb that 100 years from now you could hit 250 and win the MVP of the league if you hit 50 homers, like, he would he would he would think you're crazy. But that's exactly where we are with baseball too. Like, the math is what changes everything. The math is what changed everything. And obviously, in the NBA, it took them a while to catch up. But three is more than two. Just like if you sell off for home runs, 
generally speaking, if you if you catch one once in a while, your win probability is going to shoot up, and those singles just don't matter much. All right, which one are we on? Are we on three or four? Well, on question number four. This, I think, will come as a surprise to you. Let's see if you can get this right. So the A's were a series favorite in only one of six postseason series they won from 72 through 74. Which of those six series were they favored in? Uh, the one series was against the Mets in, in uh, 1973. That's correct. They were favored over the Mets in the 73 World Series. They were four times in, four times of those six an underdog, and they were a push in the 72 ALCS against the Tigers. That Mets team was like three games over 500 during the regular season, and the A's weren't even a prohibitive favorite. It was wild to think that they, they won four postseason series in a three-year span in which they were the clear underdog. That's wild. Well, we aired game one of that series. So, you know, Yogi Bear is the manager for the Mets and they, (laughs) we, we, you know, we're in the whole game. So NBC at that point, you know, they, they bring all the players out. I'm like, who are these guys? I mean, you got Willie Mays, who's (laughs) years old. He's done. Uh, Rusty Staub, their best player is hurt. I mean, there was a bunch of guys. I didn't even know who they were. I mean, they only won 82 games. It was like, I mean, you knew, and Seaver wasn't even starting game one. So, you know, Tom Seaver's one. Kuzman and Seaver were great. And obviously, Tom Seaver's an all-time great. But their lineup, I mean, Hembo, I was like, I don't even know who these guys are. That was one of the worst teams to reach the World Series. About 15 years ago, the Cardinals uh, won the World Series with an equally terrible record, if memory serves. But it just goes to show you, like, the watered-down nature of the playoffs in baseball uh, you know, changes everything. In, in in 2006, the Cardinals went 83 and 78 and washed out the Tigers in the World Series in five games. Every once in a while, this kind of stuff just happens. I mean, the, wow. the Giants won three World Series in five years in which they were not even close to being the best team in baseball during any of them. I'm glad you said that, not me, because if I say that, I, I get called an A's homer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all you have to do is look at the standings, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not rocket surgery, as they say. Okay, so how about this? Yeah. I don't allow you to decide it as you are ESPN. Uh, <laughs> Buster Posey, people I've worked with for years. Oh, he's a Hall of Famer. He's so good. And I go, I look at the numbers. If I take the name off the numbers, I don't see Hall of Fame. Where are you on Buster Posey? Um, my personal opinion is if I, if I had a vote, Buster Posey would not be a Hall of Famer for me because the body of work is not there. The same goes for Yadier Molina. They're very similar cases in my judgment. Buster Posey will get into the Hall of Fame. And I think the reason for it is because he checks so many boxes of, of things that Hall of Fame voters still care about. Maybe in six or seven years, the, the populace will continue to get smarter and more educated. He'll produce 40 wins above replacement. But when you want when you want an MVP, you want the rookie of the year, and you were the sort of the – what we consider the foundation, at least among position players, for that team – like when when a, when you win three World Series in five years, I'd imagine history. I have to go look this up. I'd imagine history shows that you get a decent representation in Cooperstown. Like, are those three teams not going to have any representation? Or where are you on Madison Bumgarner? Because can you have a team that wins three World Series in five years and does not have legitimate Hall of Fame representation? To me, that would be astonishing. Right now, if I had to vote, because as years ago. We just had Joe Morgan on talking about the 72 series. But years ago, uh, you know, I, I, I did an interview. When we were talking Hall of Fame with Joe Morgan. And Joe Morgan said, listen, your stats for 162 are what gets you in the Hall of Fame. The postseason stuff is just icing on the cake. Oh, I mean, I, that's 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 a, that's all well and good for him to say that. But, like, Jack Morris got into the Hall of Fame because of one start. 
like Madison Bumgarner was a markedly better postseason pitcher than Jack Morris was, and he has a long way to go still. But I mean, like Madison Bumgarner is is our Christy Matheson. Like he he has more. Like if you're not going to get in just because of the postseason. Uh, like if, if he couldn't do it, no one can, I guess, is, is, I guess is how I would put it. I, I would be a no on Posey. I would be a no on Bongarder and I would be a no, a, a no on Yadier Molina. But at some point, like the only thing that really matters is like, who's the last team that wins the game, who wins the last game of the season. And over the course of five years, the Giants did it three times. And those two people were the biggest reasons why. I mean, I don't you, do you think Bochy, you know, Bruce Bochy's going to get in the Hall of Fame, right? Even though he's lost more games than he's won. Yeah, that's you know the thing on Bo- Commander. You wanted to weigh in here. What did you want to weigh in on? Oh, you're talking about catchers. Then I always say, if you put Buster Posey in, you have to put Joe Maurer in. Do you think Joe Maurer's a Hall of Famer? I personally say yes, but because he has the, I think his WAR is close enough to the threshold. Oh, himbo! It's like fifty. I think his WAR is like fifty-five. He has the batting average. I know he didn't win any World Series, but he has the MVP, the Silver Slugger, the Gold Gloves. Joe Maurer. Joe Maurer has a like probably has a better case than Buster Posey if you just control for the regular season. But like there's like, we romanticize about world series and postseason performance. And again, like we, the, the, the major league baseball network will be able to show the video of him, you know, going out there and celebrating with Madison Bumgarner and Joe Maurer just doesn't have that. I mean, Joe Maurer won three batting titles. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, all other catchers in major league history have combined for two. Like that's like, he is, he was in his prime so much greater, but the county stats aren't, close to being there for him and he didn't even stay a catcher for that long either so they're actually really similar cases and in a vacuum Maurer's case is better because of his regular season performance but like neither none of those guys are getting in just because of the regular season I mean do you think I'm crazy like I, I don't see any way in which their regular season uh pedigrees uh warrant being hall of famers I mean like the getting in as a catcher is really hard and maybe they'll maybe they'll adjust for that but I don't I don't see it for Maurer I don't you, see it. You know, you asked about Bochi, and why I would say yes to Bochi is every single time he had a good team, he won. In San Francisco. It, it, well, and, and he got to the World Series in 98 with the Padres. He got yeah, to the post in what, 2005, 2000. He had a lot of crap teams in San Diego, which <laughs> there was no way that he was going to win. So when he's had talent, he won. Bochi went five and zero in his managing career in postseason winner take all games. His teams outscored their opponents twenty nine to six in those games. I'd have to imagine that his team, his uh, his players would say that his temperament mattered a lot. He also managed his bullpen brilliantly in the postseason. I think he's a lo- I think Bochi's a lot to get in, but the idea yeah, of him I, being I the but I mean, it seems to me like one of those players has to get in just for history's sake. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm gonna go back and look at this because. Like you can, you could argue that they're a dynasty, or at least in some variation thereof. And like, you know, you're not putting in almost anyone else. It would have to be, it would have to be Bumgarner or Posey, and neither of them have great cases. Although I, the jury's still out on Bumgarner. He could pitch for a while longer. Posey looks to me like he's pretty close to being outside of his prime. Yeah, I could see if you know, if if Masson Bumgarner goes X amount of years with double 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 digit wins, he's just got to get to the 200 mark. 200 wins or more, and I think he I think he gets it. I'm not sure that we'll be using – by the time Madison Bumgarner is eligible for the Hall of Fame, I'm not sure we'll be using any sort of threshold for wins. The problem for him is that he's ne- he was never even really considered the best pitcher of his time. Like, he, he, like, his highest Cy Young finish ever is four. He did that twice. 
there's very little black ink on this page. And like he, I think he's obviously very well liked or at least respected by the writers, which matters a ton. I'm, this is sort of, you sort of pop, pop open a can here. I'm interested to see how these guys might fare down the road, but look, Madison Bumgarner just finished his age 29 season. There's a, there's a lot of meat left on that bone. Uh, it would have been, it would have been nice to see him re-sign there and sort of give himself a chance to be one of these legacy players in San Francisco. Unfortunately, he, you know, he finds himself in the middle of a rebuild. Number five, and I'm killing it today. You are doing much better than you generally do. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> so your boy Gene Tennis hit four homers in the 1972 World Series. That broke the single series record for a catcher held by whom? Okay, say that again. Gene Tennis hit four homers in the 1972 World Series. That okay. broke the single series record for a catcher held by whom? <sighs> I mean, no one played more World Series than Yogi Berra. I'd have to go Yogi. That's correct. A nice lamp to finish off. Berra hit three homers against the Dodgers in the 1956 World Series. That was the record until Tennis hit four. He's, he's still among the most sort of like – bizarre i think world series mvps but uh definitely an interesting note and anytime you're on a anytime you're on the graphic with yogi berra uh and you're the only two names you're doing something right yeah tennis out of nowhere hit those home runs against the cincinnati reds and uh uh it's just it's it's just i I, i've been talking about how dysfunctional and the greatness of this team but now that i'm watching the last dance again uh where i'm watching it and 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 being reminded that Phil Jackson signs a one-year contract for $6 million and they tell him for sure, no matter what happens, this is your last year. Egos, man. Egos. By the way, this is something I did not know, but tennis, a career, 158 hitter in the playoffs. <laughs> in He's 140, in 146 plate appearances, but he, he hit four dingers. He hit four dingers in that World Series, and those were the only four dingers he hit in the postseason. Hambo, you're wild. the best, buddy. Are you still at your parents' house? Still at my parents' house. Um, I think it will be that way for a little while. But, I mean, look, we're doing fine. This is just life now. So <laughs> we're taking it a day at a time, and um, every day feels like a week, and every week feels like a month. So we've been doing this, I think I think it's seven weeks now, and it feels like I – I mean, it, it feels like we've been doing it forever. This is just life as we know it. So uh, take care of yourself, and I'll look forward to doing this again with you guys next week. You never thought you would be Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, did you? Never did. Never did. But uh, but here we are. And, and I, I, it's hard for me to imagine like this is we're not yet through April. Like it's this is just how people I think used to live. And we're just so spoiled and so used to being so stimulated by things now. It's almost a good reminder. At least I'm trying to do the best I can to take advantage of the time. Well, I, I can tell you, we look forward to hearing your voice every single week. And the fans love uh, they, they love all of this. So thank you for your time. Be safe and we'll talk to you next week. Always a pleasure. Take care, boys. The great Paul Himbakidis, Himbo. We got more coming up next right here on A's Cast Live. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Gone for Yelich. Cody Bellinger hits one out. He does. So he's your home run. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend.
Oh, let me tell you something that fries me. And it's something that, that it's new to this show. And you guys don't get to see it. It's this look that I got to get from Cody. When something said that he likes and he leans into the camera. So, cause Himbo says, I don't think wins are going to matter. It's a I, fact. Uh, not to voters. You're going to get voters my age going. They're going to be starting voting guys in eventually. Not to voters. Well, uh, put it this way. Does King Felix get into the Hall of Fame? Mm, not after the last couple. I would say before the last couple of years when he started having some really down years, I think he was on the trajectory to be a Hall of Famer, yes. You mean the 4.36, 5.55, and 6.40 ERAs the last three years? Yeah, take away those three years, I think he had, he was on the, the track for the Hall of Fame. But, God, he didn't – I mean, that wouldn't uh, – you, know, you, know you know what hurts him? He's never made the like, playoffs. He's never pitched a postseason game. I mean, he might with. Uh, when that's we, not his fault. Obviously. No, not at all. I mean, the Mariners haven't been to the playoffs since 2001. That's on. That's not on him. But I'm just saying, like, that's one thing that could be a knock against him. He's and, until you know, maybe he makes the Brave staff, like I said, he would before this when we thought the season was going to be starting. Uh, he could pitch a postseason game, but he was a guy that I thought would be on a halt. This, like, I think Bauer and Hembo kind of shot that down a little bit. But uh, I know that did that crush you? Are you okay? No, because I still think he gets in. I still think he gets in eventually. Because last night, how about all? How, how about our all our former colleagues who are the biggest Buster 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 Posey homers? How do you think they'd react to Hembo going? Yeah, Posey, no. Uh, but, but he went three World Series, three World Series. Okay, great. That's great. Joe Meyer won three batting titles and an MVP playing catcher. So. Uh, talk to me when when Buster Posey gets there. The, 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 I was thinking about this last night. I woke up randomly at like four in the morning. So but in this morning, and I don't what? know why. I was thinking of guys about we we're talking. We talk always talk about Hall of Fame guys, and this guy popped in my head. And I went back to look because he finished in the top, you know, top three of the MVP a few times, and he's still playing, and he's only thirty two. He'll be thirty three coming up during if we have a season. His WAR right now. I'm just gonna give you a blind resume. His WAR is forty three point one. He has almost 1,400 career hits, 243 homers, a 292 batting average, and an OPS plus in his career of 141. Do you know who that is? How many years? He's been playing in baseball for nine seasons. 43.1 war, 141 OPS plus, 243 career homers, 292 average. He's won four uh, he's been a silver slugger four times, three gold gloves, six-time All-Star, finished in the top three of the MVP three times. I have no clue. That'd be St. Louis Cardinals first baseman Paul Goldschmidt. Do you think Goldie, by the time his career is done, he will be a Hall of Famer? He's – I get – is he mid-30s now? He's 32. He'll be 33 later on this year. Yeah, that's he's going to be a fringe. I, I was, by the way, I, I, I totally – Take back my 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 Madison Bumgarner. I think he's the only guy from there that gets in. Huh? I think he's the only guy from those dynasty teams besides Bochi that gets in. Off the top of your head, how many time how many wins does he have? Uh, about a hundred and after last season, I think he has uh, like a hundred and fifteen or something. He's got one nineteen. 
Yeah, because I remember he just passed Kirk Reeder for the most wins for uh, left-handed pitcher in Giants history. His last three years, four and nine, six and seven, nine and nine. He's always had I a just, decent ERA in, in strikeouts, though. But I'm with you. His win, he never had the well, wins. He he had that run of always having a sub three ERA. Those days have been over. He's already pitched eleven years. You don't win a Cy. I, I doubt here on out he's going to win a Cy Young Award. It's, gonna get, it's getting tougher, especially now he's going to Arizona. Uh, I, there's not enough, you know. You know, when you go to Baseball Reference on the right or on the right side of all the stats is a thing called awards, and I I, I kind of guarantee you for the for guys who are just not. There's, there's guys who have gotten in to the Baseball Hall of Fame based on volume. Well, if you play 22 years, you got to be pretty damn good to play 22 years, and you're going to collect a lot of different stats. But a lot of the guys who you go, no doubt, are Hall of Famers, you go to their awards side of their baseball reference page, and you see MVPs, you see Cy Youngs, you see a ton of All-Star games, you see a bunch of gold gloves, you see... I mean, now that I'm looking at Mad Bum, and I respect him, obviously, I think the guy is taking the ball. I mean, other than the times he was injured, I mean, he took the ball and went 30-plus starts for many – let's see, he's gone out of his 11 years, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, he's started over 30 games. But the closest he's gotten to the Cy Young was fourth. He's made – Four All-Star games, and that's about that's basically it. Yeah, he doesn't. I mean, he has the body of work. We know what he's done in the postseason. He he had the legendary, you know, ninth or the seventh game pitching in the against the Royals and winning the World Series to the Giants. And you know they've been down since then. But he has the the wins aren't there. But the year for the years where he had the ER, the good ERA, he's only what thirty because he's been pitching since he was like nineteen in the big leagues, nineteen or twenty. He's going to be a guy that's fringe, but I think the postseason stats are going to help him out a lot. Like, a guy we, we're going to have on later is Tommy John. Tommy John, I think the only – if you look at his accolades, the only thing besides the 288, 288 wins, 188 no decisions, I think he was like a four-time All-Star, and that's it. No Cy Youngs, no ERA titles, stuff like that. But he also, from age, from age 33 to 46, won 164 games after Tommy John surgery. And he's a guy that should be and in the Hall of Fame. Not he's in. Not, and he's not in. So, and he won 288 games. That's, you know, Bumgarner has 119. He has 288. And he's not in. So, it's going to be tough well, for Bumgarner. I, but I will say this. Bumgarner in the World Series, 4 0 with a 0.25 ERA. And one of the greatest saves of all time in World Series history. His World Series isn't good. But is, is, are we voting a guy? Then it then, then our Hall of Fame now becomes like football. I think that's you know, fo- fo- football now becomes, you know, is Terrell Davis really a Hall of Famer? No. Well, he got hurt and he hurt his knee, but oh, look what he did in the Super Bowl, two Super Bowls. You know, the, the football is all about the Super Bowl. What did you do in the Super Bowl? It's like Jim Plunkett, and I know Jim Plunkett personally, and I love Jim Plunkett. Stanford, great. San Jose, great. Um, people make an argument for him because he won two Super Bowls. But when you look at the numbers, 
more interceptions than touchdowns. You know, that's, you know, football, the, 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 the hall of fame has be- become about what'd you do in the Super Bowl and what'd you do in the postseason? Baseball has always been about what did you do for a career? And if we just start putting people in based on their postseason, well, then what are you going to do with all those Yankees? I mean, there, there, there's a ton of Yankee players that are not in the Hall of Fame who have won a bunch of championships. Yankees have won 27 titles. So over the span of their history, how many of those guys that were on the teams that won five straight that if you're going to now just start putting people in because of their postseason, how many of those Yankee players who I guarantee you have comparable or better stats than than Buster Posey and Madison Bumgarner, are we now going to have to open the floodgates and put more Yankees in? How many pennants do you think? How many times do you think the Yankees have been to the World Series? Well, they won 27 times. Yeah. Uh, I want to say they've been to about, I'd say at least 45. They've been to 40. Okay, that was close. So when you've been to 40 World Series and you look at these spans and, you know, they have runs of they went to the World Series in 47, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53. And then again in 55 and 56 and 57 and 58. Think about this run. Okay, this is insane. 47, okay, 1947, 1949. 1950, 1951, 1952, 1953, 1955, 56, 57, 58, 1960, 61, 62, 63, 64. In a span from 1947 to 1964, they basically were in the World Series almost every year. You're just going to have to put everyone in from those teams, right? I mean, that had good stats. Yeah, and they then uh, this is this is a shameless plug, but they 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 lost the most lopsided World Series in history game in 1960, where they outscored the Pirates by like 30 runs. But those teams they were incredible with the players, Mickey Mantle and DiMaggio. The, I could I, I mean Whitey Ford. You know, remember 55 and 56 they played Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers, and you know Jackie they won. I think what the Dodgers won in 50. What year did they win? Was it 56? But they lost in 55 and. It just the team. This is the teams they went through to get there, but the 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 level of success is like the Patriots now. Like if you're going to put people in, how many guys on those Patriots teams that have, that have been to the Super Bowl are you going to put in the Hall of Fame? Because the one guy you mentioned, Terrell Davis, the one guy for me for the NFL that is like the the misnomer, and he had a nice career and he won the Super Bowl and he's a great story. Uh, Kurt Warner, I mean, is he really a Hall of Fame caliber quarterback? But you may, you brought the case of Jim Plunkett and. I guess a plunker goes in, then you have to put Kurt Warner in. But, you know, the one guy that should be in the Hall of Fame for the NFL that's not is, is – oh, I always go back to this – it should be Tom Flores. He won two Super Bowls as a coach, and he's not, and he's not in there. That, there's guys like that with baseball. Like, when you, we bring up Bruce Bochy, I always argue, you know, Bochy won the three World Series, but he has more losses than wins. What about Jim Leland? Because Leland won one with the Marlins. He was a three-time manager of the year. He took the Pirates to the you know the NLCS a couple times. He did it with the Tigers how many times? He went to the World Series with the Tigers twice. I think Leland should be in the Hall of Fame too. I know he doesn't have two thousand wins, but 
He's another guy that should be a Hall of Fame what, manager. Wait, yeah, but yeah, but what's his winning percentage? Uh, Lee, winning percentage has to be off the charts. He's, I think he's only like in his career. I, I literally, he's once he's won one thousand seven hundred sixty nine games, and he's lost one thousand seven hundred twenty eight. He has a winning percentage of five oh six. Where does that rank? Uh, let me look up all time wins and managers. Because you got to work. You're not going to go on wins. You're going to go on winning percentage. Yeah, there's no doubt the success of Jim Leland. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, Leland's seventeenth all time in wins. He's what? He's seventeenth all time in wins. Terry Francona might pass him eventually because Francona's about uh, Francona's 102 wins behind Leland right now. And Francona has a 5.42 winning percentage. He's another guy that's, you know, he's won a few World Series in his time, and he's done great things, but. What Leland's done, I think if you're – I mean, Boach is going to get in because he has the two World Series titles, as we mentioned. I think he's one of – he'd be one of only, I think, two – One of there's only one other guy, I think, that has 2,000 wins that's not in the Hall of Fame or – no, that's two World Series. There was some kind of stat about it. But I think Boach is going to get in. It's just a matter of when. And then I think you have to consider Jim Leland, in my personal opinion, because he won one and he's been to several. Yeah, I mean, I have no problem with Jim Leland getting in. Like I'm looking at some of the I, other managers on the list. Like Mike Sosha's on here, Buck Showalters. These are all guys behind uh, Jim Leland, uh, Chuck Tanner, Davey Johnson, and then you you know you got Billy Martin, uh, Joe Madden is on here. But you know no one's coached. You know the only one close to Jim Leland right now is Terry Francona. Uh, you know there's certain people that have a career that. With the Veterans Committee, I think we should look at the entire career when you say, is a guy a Hall of Famer? And you mentioned one guy that I think if you combine his playing career with his managing career, that'd be Mike Sosha. I mean, Mike Sosha spent his entire career as a Los Angeles Dodger. And obviously, Mike Sosha won a World Series as a Los Angeles Dodger. And then he won a, a, a World Series as the skipper of the Angels. So if you look at his time as a player and a manager, the success that he had, you know, you don't get voted like the player. I mean, remember, this is like, this is a committee. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you look at the baseball life of Mike Sosha and say that's a Hall of Fame career? I, I agree. I was looking at him too because he has a he almost has a fi, uh, five forty win. He has a five thirty six winning percentage, which in the scheme of things that's still high, that's higher than Jim Leland. That's higher than Bruce Bochy because Bochy obviously is below five hundred in his career. Um, and then you have other guys too. Like he's higher than Buck Showalter. Um, he's close. I mean, he's a little, only a little behind Terry Francona. I, I think what Sosha's done and. He had the great run of success with the the Angels. Now, yes, the last what decade or so, where they made the playoffs one time with Mike Trout, and they didn't even win a game. They got swept by the Royals. I still think you have to consider him because of what he did, of the body of success with the Angels, and and just some of the guys that he the coach under turned into managers too. It shows you that he was able to build a coaching staff and and have guys grow. Joe Madden was one. Ron Renicky. You had a bunch of guys work under him that are now managers or were managers in Major League Baseball. And you know who's going to have a shot. If he can get a World Series title, will be our guy Bob Melvin. 
three-time manager of the year. If Bob Melvin could get a World Series title, and I do believe he will track down Tony Larusa and wins as an A's manager. If he can get that World Series title, which obviously the group is here now. I mean, the, a- the A's are primed to make a run in the next couple of years. I think there's no question. Before the new building shows up, the A's could be adding a fifth World Series title. If Melvin could get one, hell, if he gets two, I think it's for sure. The respect that Bob Melvin has in the game of baseball, if you start adding some hardware with it to go with manager of the year three times, when he won it the last time, did you did you see that list he's on of guys who have won it three times? It's Hall of Fame managers. Yeah, and he did it, you know, the year he did it, what was that, 20, it was 2018 when he last won, when the A's came in and won 97 games. But he, he's done it with, you know, with the A's twice, and he did it with the, was it the Diamondbacks or Seattle? I can't remember. Uh, I think it's Seattle. Because even though Seattle teams, because, you know, obviously they – they uh they have made, it had to be Arizona because unless he did great and they didn't make the postseason because they have made the postseason since 2001 and that's when they had the great Lou Pinella as their manager. But what Bob's done in Oakland from 2012 to now, I mean, yeah, they there's been the lean years, you know, 15, 16, 17, but 12, 13, 14, 18, and 19. I'm wrong. It was the D-backs. Okay, yeah. 2007. Because I was say he could. I mean, I guess if he did well enough in Seattle and you want to manage the year, you make the playoffs, but. Uh, Arizona. Okay, so Arizona once and twice with the A's. I, I'm with you. I think he can track down Larusa and become the you know the wins and for for the A's. I, uh, I don't think anyone's catching uh, the great Connie Mack, but uh, I think that when it's all said, I think Bob has a really good shot of being a Hall of Famer too. His winning percentage is five eleven. It's higher than Jim Leland. And bottom line. This team that he has going forward is going to be winning a lot of games. And I could see that winning percentage just going north, not south. And you you rack up a couple more years of 90 wins, maybe even 100 wins. And if you can get that, that World Series title... I could see Bob Melvin being voted in because I could see him winning more Managers of the Year awards. And I'm not being a homer. I mean, look, he's won it three times. And people understand that that, that's why that's why Billy, David and Bob, the three headed monster that we have with the A's are so important because and it's and you could say the same thing as as Cody's best friend down in Tampa, Cashy as he likes to call him. <laughs> Kevin Cash is these two organizations they overcome the obstacles and they know how to do it. And they don't go like, 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 we're going to talk to Rick Dempsey, who was two time World Series champion, World Series MVP. He was a part of greatness in Baltimore. There used to be a thing called the Oriole Way. And 
you know, if you followed the A's in the 70s, they had a lot of battles with the Orioles in the 70s, and the Orioles were good in the 60s. They now just flat out suck. And they they they're they're not trying. They they I I I you know, I mean, bottom line is what is it like to be a major league baseball team and you know that the front office doesn't want you to win? What's his name? Uh the old the um friend of the program, we had him on former Astros uh manager. Phil Garner? No, 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 no. After Gardner. Former Astros manager. The uh, guy we had – what's his name? Well, it's not A.J. Hinch, so – Oh, Bo. Oh, Bo Porter. Bo Porter. Bo Porter, yeah. He was there for the, lead, I, the very lean years. <laughs> so, Bo Porter, we, we tape an interview with him. You want to talk about going behind the scenes. I didn't want to ask him this because – it's something that if I did ask him and he gave a great answer, it's something that could go viral and put him in a bad light. And then I got to answer for it. And that it's something I, I have now realized what I do. If something happens, that's really, that's important. It can go everywhere. And it's like when I broke the news about the Raiders and the coaching staff and Hugh Jackson after losing to the Chargers went in and fired his entire defensive staff after the last game. I put it out there on Twitter and I also uh, doing a football show back in the day with Dave Rosano and Dana Stubblefield on 95-7 the game. Years ago, we used to do an NFL show on Sunday night and I broke it on that show. Well, this thing went everywhere. You can still tweet it and find it i was in the usa today i was on pro football talk my name was everywhere i had people calling me all from all around the country where did you get this because the raiders were calling me lie they were calling me a liar it didn't happen they denied denied and the reason why they could deny it is because coaches contracts run till it's like january 29th or something like that there's this date every year in the nfl where coaches contract so Essentially, teams that are in the Super Bowl, the co- the contracts for the coaches have run out. They're still going to get paid, but they've run out. So the Raiders could deny what I was reporting, but I actually got the information from one of the coaches. And this was one of those deals where I, you want to talk about sleepless nights because luckily my old boss, Jason Barrett, backed me. But if I would have been wrong, I mean, I could have lost my job. That's what gets me about all these people now on these cable news channels, not to get political here, but the fact that they can constantly give opinions and be wrong and just move on. We can't do that in sports because we have something that's called a scoreboard. You're either going to be right or you're going to be wrong. You know, we've had everybody make opinions in politics and they can be wrong and they just move on to the next thing. Us in sports, when we're wrong, there's a scoreboard. And luckily, it was Hugh Jackson um, that went on with Yahoo Sports and backed my story up. And then all the hate, you should have seen the hate I got on Twitter. 
you know, it's funny. It's like one minute I'm the Raiders guy, I'm the greatest guy in the world, and the next minute I'm I'm being trolled as I'm evil and I'm against the franchise. Literally, my name went national. And it was so uncomfortable. I'll never do it again. I've gotten breaking news about the A's. Won't do it. I got breaking news about Cespedes being traded. I knew that morning he was being traded. I didn't go with it. Because what happens? All of a sudden, everybody comes after you. And I'm never going to do that again in my career. I knew Stephen Vogt got designated for assignment that night. And people didn't have it till the next morning. I didn't go with it. I got out after, after going through that Raider debacle. I, I, I'll never do it again. It's just not worth it. Like, if you're Adam Schefter, if you're Jeff Passan, if you're these guys, that's their job. Their job is to break the news. And they've done it so much, people don't come after them. But if you're a guy like me and you break it, everybody's going to hold your feet to the fire until you're proven right. What's the guy What's the guy from Berkeley who's uh, NFL Network? God, why can't I remember his name? The great Michael Silver. Michael Silver. So it was Hugh Jackson and Michael Sil- Silver did the interview when Silver was at Yahoo. That backed my story up. And then Silver... Some of our colleagues went to Silver on Twitter and said, well, you need to say Chris Townsend's been vindicated. And he did. This was years ago. But the breaking news business is not. And that's why Bo Porter, I asked him off the air, hey, how tough was it? You got these guys that you're traveling the country with. You're trying to win. And Jeffrey Luno in the front office, they don't want to win. And remember his answer, Cody, because you heard it about how uncomfortable it was and how sad it was. You're a big league manager. You have to manage these 25 people. But the people above you who are paying you and the owner, they don't want to win. Thank God we never have to do that with the A's. Billy Bean is always trying to win. David Force is always trying to win. And it's why I respect Tampa so much. They're always trying to win. And now you look at Baltimore. You're putting on that Orioles uniform. Are you going to be? I wouldn't be a team player. I'd be all about myself and all about the stats. You want me to bunt? No way. I'm swinging for the fences. Because I know you don't want me to win. I'm playing for myself. I'm not playing for this team. You're in Detroit. You're in Kansas City. I'm not playing. The, The front of my jersey means nothing. It's all about the back of the jersey with my name on it. Because I'm auditioning for the other 29 teams. I, I, You go to spring training with the Orioles, and you're the manager, and you stand up in front of the 40-man roster and the people that are the biggest players in your organization, and you're trying to preach a message. This is what the Orioles are about. I'd love to raise my hand and go, hey, hey, hey Jack, this, is, this, this ain't working for me. I know they don't want to win. So I'm going to be all about me. There's no I in team, but there's an M and an E, and it's called me. That's what I would be saying for some of these teams. Because if you're not trying, why am I going to – I'm going to be all about myself. I mean, how, would you, how, how, how in any way would you disagree with that? Why would you be a team player on a team where the front office does not want to win? 
Well, they're a team that's won, uh, if you look, go back and look, they've won 101 games the last two years. The uh, Twins, Yankees, Dodgers, and Astros won more than that last season alone. Now, I feel bad for our guy Trey Mancini because, you know, friend of the program, we had him on last year when the team was here in Baltimore. When Baltimore was here, he had 35 homers last year, drove in 97 runs. He's been, a, he's been the best player on that team for the last few seasons, but they're, they're not winning. And they have, now they have, you know, I j- playfully joke, my uh, Uncle Mike's there, Uncle Mike Elias and, and Sig Dell, two guys from Jeffrey Leno in Houston, and they're, they're tearing it down to the studs. They have, a four, they have the lowest payroll in baseball at $46 million. They have one good pitcher in John Means because he had a great break, breakout year last year as a rookie. Uh, they're hoping that Alex Cobb comes back from all the injuries. But when you look at the, their lineup, I mean, they had a couple nice stories. Uh, Renato Nunez, the former A, uh, hit 31 homers last year, but they're not winning. They and they have a nice farm system. It's getting there, but they're, they're not going to be good for years. And they're playing the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Rays 19 times a year each. And the Blue Jays are getting better. It's it's. I feel bad for Brandon Hyde. He's a local. He's a local guy from Santa Rosa. Coats under Joe Madden, and now he's there in Baltimore. And they're not winning for you know the next couple of years. Like you know, I don't I don't want any fan base to go through something like that. Because remember, as I always point out, I watched 20 years of bad baseball. And uh, it's not something you want to see. And the, and the Pirates were never as bad as some of these teams are tanking now. Like the Orioles, the Tigers, the Royals, how the Astros were. The Pirates were just bad because they didn't have a draft. And they didn't sign players and they didn't develop. These teams are just, you know, strategically losing. That's my personal opinion. They're strategically losing because they're trying to rebuild and, you know, spend as little money as possible and bring in as much money as they can in revenue. But the Orioles were 14th in attendance in the American League last year. So you're not gonna you're not gonna bring in money if you're not winning and you're not getting people to come to your ballpark because never been there. But Camden Yards is a beautiful ballpark, and you can't get anyone to go because you're not winning. Now, how did you get Buck Showalter to buy into that last year when they lost when they only won 47 games in 2018? I, I just don't get it. And I you know I, I'm always I've always been a fan of tanking and I think that it works. But when you're doing it this like when you're not spending the money and you're just you know pretty much saying we're not trying to win, at least go out there and try to give off the illusion that you're trying to win. As a Sixers fan, I watched them trust the process for years, and it finally paid off. Well, they haven't won a championship, but it finally paid off. I, those guys tried hard, and I'm watching some of these teams. I, I don't think that they're really giving it their all sometimes when I'm watching them. Well, earlier today, we got a chance to bring back on the program a World Series MVP in 1983, a two-time World Series champion, and a man's career that spans from 1969 all the way to 1992. And he now is a broadcaster for the Baltimore Orioles. What a career he had. And whenever you can get someone like Rick Dempsey on the program, it's an absolute honor. He's in the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame. He's one of the best catchers of his generation. Here is my conversation with the great Rick Dempsey. Well, as everybody knows here on Ace Cast Live, we've been breaking down every division. We're now in the AL East. We're going to be talking about the Baltimore Orioles. But more importantly, he's one of the guys that, you know, when you grew up watching, you knew he was one of the best. And now he is a professional landscaper. The great Rick Hempsey is with us here on Ace Cast Live. Rick, thanks for coming on again. How are you? Well, I'm good, other than uh, my my back is broken because I've been doing, like you say, way too much landscaping. I bet your lawns look great. My lawns are perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I'll put them up against anybody in the world right now. 
It's, it's, it, it's incredible. I put all new front yard in. I've had the decking, the swimming pool, the jacuzzi, uh, all sorts of gardens. I've got three and a half acres. I've got all sorts of gardens for everything up here. Man, if you saw a video of my yard, you would go, oh, my God, it's Disneyland. <laughs> can you uh, imagine you can start a landscaping business? You can say, hey, listen, hire me. We can talk baseball, and, and I'll fix your lawn, your plants. You and got everything. it. You got it. I can rebuild those uh, the, the valves. I can do sprinkler heads. I can do all of it. You name it. Uh, concrete work, stairways, retaining walls. I do it. <laughs> you know, one thing we've learned from the NFL draft and the numbers from the NFL draft of the people watching is we need sports and we want to watch live sports. Once we get this thing going again, what do you think it's going to be like as our national pastime helps us heal once again? Well, I think we're going to be crippled for a while, you know, with everybody playing out of a spring training facility, if we even get to do that, playing out of a spring training facility. No fans. I mean, I had one game over the course of my entire career that I did as a broadcaster, the one game uh, with the Orioles a couple years ago where there was no fans at the ballpark. And uh, Incredible. The Orioles scored like eight runs in the first inning of that game, and there was nobody there to cheer for you not one base hit. So it was kind of an eerie feeling. You know, I wanted to run down and get every foul ball in the grandstands, but we, they didn't want us to do that. <laughs> but wow, it was strange. And now we're looking at a, maybe a full season of that same thing. Yeah. That was because of the unrest that was going on in Baltimore. Yep. And I'll never right. forget what, you know, there was actually fans outside of Camden yards and you can look in and see the game. So yeah, it's uh you're the one. You're, you're one of the only few that have ever seen a major league baseball game where there were no fans in the ballpark. I know it at Camden Yard. It was it was a it was a strange, eerie feeling. Yeah, and that 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 may become the new new norm for a while, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully, we can get this thing going and, and put it on television. And you know, it's been tough times for the Baltimore Orioles. You know, because when I grew up watching you play for the. Baltimore Orioles. There was the Oriole way. It was one of yeah. the, the model franchises in Major League Baseball. And now in a full rebuild mode, what is that like? Well, it, it, it's tough because a lot of the philosophies about the game have changed. You know, the analytics has come in and it seems like players, um, uh, the approach is, is different, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure maybe players before I came in and I broke in the big leagues in 1969 thought that the approach was different, but wow, has it ever changed a lot, you know, and I'm getting, in a sense, I'm kind of getting a little worried about, you know, our impact on the fans and what they look forward to in Major League Baseball, in a baseball game, and, and how much it, it is changing so fast. I just don't want to lose any more fans. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously right down the street is the Baltimore Ravens, and they're sold out every single game, and everybody's loving Ravens football. And you look at what's going on with Baltimore, and it's, it's, it's an empty house almost every single night. And you understand it, 54 and 108. You only win 54 games in a year. I mean, Rick, that's tough. That's tough to watch. Yeah, it it, it really is. Um, it's uh, it's it's so different because when I came to the Baltimore Orioles uh, in uh, 1976, 
this organization was already uh, one of the best in all of baseball. We were in the top three best organizations ever. And we produced players and pitchers. Everything was pitcher dominant and defense dominant. And then we mixed in just enough home runs uh, to make a, a pretty good dynasty for quite a while. Uh, with Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Boog Powell, Jim Palmer, guys like that, you know. And I was so lucky, even though I hated the trade at the time because I was playing for the New York Yankees when we had a 10-player trade and then went to Baltimore uh, at the time. I just did, I didn't want to get away from the Yankees because they were a pretty good ball club and we were, we were going to play in the World Series in 1972 um, or – 76 excuse me in 76 and um, getting traded away from that team I didn't know what to expect but I went with the Orioles and what it just turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me in my career yeah that that would be uh getting beat up by the big red machine in 1976 yep. and the Yankees would have a couple legendary battles with the Los Angeles Dodgers we just had Steve Garvey on because we've been uh, going over the A's in the 70s when the A's won in 72, 73, 74. And you played against those teams. You know how good the, the dynasty that was the Oakland A's in the early 70s. Well, before that, the Oakland A's were awesome. In 1969 and 1970, I was playing in the big leagues for the Minnesota Twins. And the Oakland A's were in our division and they beat us uh, both years. And so they they were already, you know, entertaining the talents of Catfish Hunter at that time. And he's just unbeatable. That ball club with Campaneros at shortstop and Reggie Jackson and, and these players that they had at that time, Joe Rudy. Wow. I mean, they just, they developed a dynasty there in Oakland that just couldn't be matched and hasn't been matched ever since. Yeah, that's been kind of one, you know, for a lot of our fans and including myself, I was born in 1972. So it's like we've read books about them, but this is the first time we've been able to watch them taking down the big red machine or beating. And really that Mets team was, they only won 82 games, but they, they got hot and they won their division and, and have beaten the big red machine. Then of course the great Dodger team in 1974 that the A's took down it's just you look at that time. It's so fascinating because they're so dysfunctional. They fight each other. They all hate the owner. I mean, it's all stuff that you would, Rick, you'd never see today. I know. I think back at that series because, you know, I was 19 years old in 1969 playing for the Minnesota Twins. And I was just learning the game back then from guys like Jim Cotton and Harmon Killebrew. But you look at 1974, and we watched those games every single pitch and tried to study everything and learn everything we possibly could. But can you imagine a World Series, a five-game World Series, where four games were determined, a 3-2, to 3-2 two, to two win for Oakland, 3-2 to two Dodgers, 3-2 to two Oakland, 5-2 yeah. Oakland, and 3-2 to two Oakland. It's just amazing, 3-2. to two. They had to play the one-run game. They played the one-run game pretty good. That's what I miss about baseball, and a lot of people do. Late in those ball games, when one run is going to be the difference, we didn't have guys sitting back trying to hit home runs. We played one-run game well, 
we got guys over, we got them into scoring position, and you won a lot of ball games that way. And I still think that's the way to develop a dynasty is being able to play that one-run game from that seventh inning on is is the biggest difference in the game today. The shift and everything. Um, uh, maybe the numbers tell you you should play over that way, but uh, there are times that game situation for me determines how you play the game. What, yeah. What's the score late in the ball game, and you know what do you what do you got coming up, and who's in the bullpen for you, etc. It's a whole different strategy. And I know you'll appreciate this because we've been looking at it. All these games were under three hours, all of them. Yeah. Well. You know, I have a theory, and I don't know if you care to hear it, but love to hear it. <laughs> if you got time, listen. The way I caught 24 years in the big leagues, I caught 27 years overall in professional baseball. And one thing I see a huge difference in in the game today, and you'll probably never be able to pick it. What is the biggest difference when you look watch a ball game? And today, with the pitchers only going four and five innings with 100 pitches, what do you think the difference is? I, 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 off the top of my head, I'd say all the relievers. Okay, you, you watch from this point on. You watch how far back the catchers are sitting now behind home plate when they go to receive pitches. I used to be able to touch a, a right-hander or a left-handed hitter. I used to be able to touch his glove, uh, his knee with my hand on the right side, the left-handed hitters, and touch the right-handed hitters with my glove. That's how far back. When they were in that batter's box, I was as close to home plate as I could get because pitches on the corners get called strikes when you catch them near the corners. And if they go across the corner of the plate, they got a whole lot more pitches called strikes than they do today because they're sitting almost three feet farther back than they ever did before because they don't want the hitter's backswing to hit them. It used to be I was up so close to the hitters that the backswing was behind me. Now, you move the catcher back three feet from home, from the back of home plate from where he was. He can barely stretch his glove out and reach the back of the batter's box. That means the umpire is going to be so far back he can't call pitches. Catcher's right-hand hitter, breaking ball from a right-hander down and away. You catch right on the corner. By the time he catches it, it's almost a foot to a foot and a half off the corner on the breaking ball and anything else that moves there by the time the catcher catches it it's it's so far a ball i'm wondering the talent's no different pitching wise than uh, than it was in my day but what is the difference why is it that good starting pitchers are out of the game by the time they get to the fourth or fifth inning with a hundred pitches it's the catcher sitting back too far it's just common sense at the angles and the release points that pitchers have and they come across home plate instead of down the middle, they're not getting those pitches called strikes. Out of the 200 pitches of every ball game now, if the catcher moves up closer to home plate, he's going to get 15% more of his pitches called strikes, which is 30 more strikes during the course of the ball game, which really translate analytically into 8 to 10 more 2 and 2 counts, which is a pitcher's count as opposed to a 3 and 1 count, which is a hitter's count. So you see where they're trying to improve the offense of the game by tightening up the ball, making the ballparks more hitter-friendly, but they're totally forgetting that pitching is the name of the game. And so you, this series, that the series we're going to talk about, 1972, 73, and 74, 
the Oakland A's were pitching rich. They kept the same guys in that rotation all of those years. Vita Blue, Ken Holtzman, Catfish, Hunter, and Blue Moon Odom. And you finished it off with Raleigh Fingers. That is the name of the game, pitching and defense. You love to see the offense, but you just don't want players anymore sitting back trying to hit all the home runs, although I love to see home runs, and I love to hit home runs. But <laughs> – to win baseball games, I would much rather win the game than hit a home run in the game that didn't matter. So that, yeah, that's, I think, go ahead. That's pretty fascinating what you're talking about. By the catcher moving forward, you're moving the umpire forward, more strikes being called. Yep. Fat, the game being fat. Can, can I make you commissioner for the day? You know, I, I wish I could, I, I could talk to them. And, and I tried to at one point. Um, I think I talked to Joe Coleman, the president of the National League, recently, and I said, I can help you with all of the problems that you have in Major League Baseball now, the speed of the game, the time of the game. I can help you in one move. And I got a little bit of a sarcastic reply. Oh, yeah, really? What's that going to be? So you kind of don't even want to tell them from the beginning. But trust me when I say if those catchers move up to home plate as close as they can get without getting hit with a, you know, with a swing, you're going to get back to where the game was before. And the pitchers in today's game, as big as those ERAs now, those things are going to drop down and they're going to start winning ball games. And they're going to, it's really going to save the time of the game because this is what happens in today's game. Even the good pitcher pitching well in the five, he's out in the fifth inning. You've got two situational guys coming in on each team to pitch the sixth and the seventh inning. Then you've got another man to pitch the eighth inning, and you've got your setup guy. And then you have the closer to pitch the ninth inning. Now that's four pitchers on the average on each team that are coming in to finish off a ball game. You take the manager from the mound to walk to the mound, then call for the right-hander or the left-hander. He throws two or three more pitches in so doing. Then he jump, He comes in, runs in from center field uh, bullpen. He walks across the infield. He takes the ball. The manager goes back to the dugout. It's probably anywhere between eight and ten minutes to change a pitcher, and that's four guys on each team. You figure out how much more time it takes just to change the pitcher in the game under those circumstances to finish off a ball game today than it ever did before. That's why you see the games that aren't around three hours anymore. They're closer to four and four plus to get to get through a baseball game. You're the MVP of the 1983 World Series, and then you'd win another World Series in 1988 against our A's and the A's were, they, they were favored in this, but great pitching and defense. Once again, what, what was it like winning the world series and beating the A's in 1988? I was probably right there at 40 years old. When I, uh, when I asked the Dodgers to give me a chance to win, um, I talked to the general manager of the Do uh, the Dodgers, Fred Claire. And I said, Fred, Give me a chance to come in here and make your ball club in the spring. I'll hit a home run every 24 at-bats. I'll drive in a run every five at-bats, but I'll take your pitching staff and I'll change them around, and we'll win the, uh, the our division. We'll win the playoffs. 
we'll win the World Series. I'll catch the last pitch and I'll give you the ball. And I went into that Oakland A series thinking that since we beat the, the Mets in the playoffs, I thought, geez, now we're going to be up against one of the best offensive teams in the history of World Series. Conseco, McGuire, you name all the big power hitters they had. They had a, a great combination of speed, on-base percentage, and power. And as it turned out, turned out to be the easiest World Series, the easiest series I think I ever caught because every single one of the Oakland A's told me exactly what he was looking for every single at-bat by watching their feet. It's funny how Conseco, you go through the highlights and you see Conseco, McGuire, and like six or seven of their key hitters would open their front foot up. So it must have been something that the, the, the hitting instructor got everybody to try and they were successful doing it. They'd look middle in for the ball with the open front foot. And then when they would pigeon toe a little bit, they were looking middle away. So it was easy to pitch to either side of the plate because I had some pretty good uh, pitchers Oral Hershiser, probably the best season anybody's <laughs> ever had. And then Tim Belcher and Tim Leary, uh, they were spotting the ball pretty good by the time we got to that point in the season. So it was just, it really just came down to being able to pitch to one half of the plate or the other, and we orchestrated it pretty darn well. We got the momentum with the Kurt Gibson home run, but outside of that, we picked them apart. We picked them apart offensively because they told me things when they stepped in the batter in the box, what they were looking for by the way that they, their batting stance was. So it turned out and worked for us. I think people forget how good Oral Hershiser was. He was absolutely oh. an ace. Uh, the nickname, the Bulldog, before he got hurt, I, there, were, there, were, there were, really wasn't anybody better than Oral Hertzizer. Well, it, it, it was truly his year, and he deserved every bit uh, of that Cy Young Award that season. It was just the most incredible run I have ever caught, and I've caught 16 Cy Young Award winners during the course of my career at some time or another. And it was just amazing to see that uh, the two-seam fastball that he had I could tell the hitter it was coming, and they still couldn't even come close to hitting it. He would throw at left-handers in the in the left-handed batter's box and hit the outside corner. That's how much movement he had, and it was uh, it was an amazing year. I caught Palmer, who you know uh, won three Cy Young awards in twenty games, eight times in a season. And Jim had the most fantastic career you'd ever want to have. And Oral Hershiser had that one year that was actually better. And it was it was something to see. And I just thank God I was the lucky one who got to catch him in that game. So yeah, yeah. And, and, and one guy we want we've really been highlighting in the '70s is Raleigh Fingers. And yep. Raleigh, you know, we look at the, the modern day guys and we go, oh, these guys are the greatest closers of all time. They're all one inning guys. When you really look at Raleigh Fingers numbers, I, I've been trying to say on this show that you can make a case that he's the greatest reliever of all time because uh, forget the saves numbers. Look at all how he how he impacted the game and the volume of innings that he pitched. Uh, you played against Raleigh for a long time. You know his greatness. 
a, a, a little funny note about Mike Flanagan and Raleigh Fingers. Both of them got together and sent me a picture. I was Flanagan's first strikeout and Raleigh Fingers' last strikeout. <laughs> it's a great picture, but <laughs> anyways, you're right. I mean, Raleigh Fingers, he had that thing that a lot of great closers have had is that confidence when he came into a ball game he was the dominant man there was there was no fear in the way he pitched he had good movement of the ball he was not afraid to throw the ball over the plate he if you watch him orchestrate a hitter when he got ahead in the count he would push a little bit. He had patience. And I try to tell young players in today's game, too, you've got to have patience with hitters, good hitters, when they come into ballgame. They didn't get that reputation by being anything but good mental hitters. So if you're ahead two strikes and no balls, you just can't go for the juggler right there because they're just too good. But you've got to push a little. And this is what you learn from a guy like Raleigh Fingers is every now and then you brush your hitter back. He gives up the outside corner. You can tell by the body language. And boom, he goes back down and away with a little cut fastball or a slider. And he does his job. And, you know, you're right. He he could have been the best of all time with the numbers he put up because Everything changes every year, the conditions, the ballparks, the situations, the teams, and everything like that. But Raleigh Fingers was the most consistent guy of that era ever. How how much is it going to cost for me to get you up here to fix my lawn? <laughs> you send me pictures of your lawn, and I'll give you some suggestions, <laughs> I'll tell you. But my back is in the, I've got I've only got very few days left working in my yard because I've just about destroyed my lower back. It's totally ruined my golf game. Well, I tell you what, I grew up watching you, and it's an honor to have you on the program once again. We always appreciate it. You're an absolute legend, a World Series MVP, a two-time World Series champion. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Be well, be safe, and I can't wait to talk to you once we get this season started. Chris, thank you so much, my man. Thank you. That man's a legend right there. How good was that? Talking about fixing his lawn. We're bringing up Raleigh Fingers, Jim Palmer, how to make baseball better by the catchers moving up. You know who we got to talk to that about? That'd be the one of the heroes of game five of the 1974 World Series, one Raymond Fossey. That is correct. I don't know if you saw the email, but I found the uh, radio call of the Fosse home run off Don Sutton that we can coming use. Up, coming up next, you're going to hear Ray Fosse go deep in the final game of the 1974 World Series next, right here on A's Cast Live. And we have another legend coming your way, the great Tommy John. That's all next. Now back to A's Cast Live, broadcasting from the town. Here's Chris Townsend. All righty. Tommy John, the legend, right? It's just today's just a day of legends is going to join us in just a few. So tomorrow night, Cody, we're doing game four of the 1974 World Series between the Dodgers and the Athletics. Ken Korak and I will get you ready for the ball game at 730. 
You can listen to the game, the radio call here on A's cast. Oh, no, we're, we're still doing the television call, right? Uh, yes. Or you can watch it on NBC Sports California starting at 8 o'clock. We will not be airing Game 5. But in Game 5, a very special moment for the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. The strike one pitch from the right-hander, Sutton. And there's the curve, hits deep to left field. Back goes Buckner. The curveball is hit out of here, and it's 2 to nothing. Fossey gets the home run. Sutton hung a curveball for Ray Fossey, and he jumped all over it and hit it out of here. You don't hang a curveball to the great Raymond Fossey and think you're going to get away with that in a World Series game, Don Sutton. Then we, then we found out later in the old-timers game, Sutton threw over his head 13 years later. <laughs> so ridiculous. So ridiculous. If only Fossey could have got that bunt down in, a, what was it, game, game two, no, game one of the World Series where Fossey was watching game himself one. bat. <laughs> he was so mad at himself for not getting that bunt down. Come on, Foss. You got to get the bunt down. I don't care about your home runs. Get that sacrifice. That's all we care about. I don't care about you throwing runners out. Drop the bunt that, down. <laughs> that bunt could have cost the team that. If we, we have Fossey on on Wednesday, it'll be like, if I was doing the postgame show, I would have ripped you. Can't get a bunt down. Shame on you, Raymond Fossey. You should be like, you know how many calls we, we were getting on the pregame show about you not being able to drop down that bunt? Our lines that, were exploding. No one even wanted to talk about the victory. No one want, all they want to talk about, Fossey can't bunt. <laughs> Twitter blew up. It's gone viral. Have you watched the uh, former A's prospect go deep off of his uh, softball pitcher wife? I did, but apparently there's a new video out on Twitter. I just saw it during the break. His wife gets him back, and she hits a, uh, a moonshot off of him and does a, a bat flip. Oh, does she really? Yeah, someone retweeted former, it. Former Texas A&M softball star. She was like all SEC or second team, something like that, at uh, Texas A&M. As soon as, as soon as the ball went off his bat, or off her bat, she just uh, the the he just dropped on his knees and he was like, "Oh man, <laughs> it was pretty funny." Well, there's another one. So it's on Instagram. There's another one. I mean, she. I mean, she's throwing some heat. There's no question. She brings the heat. Uh, speaking of a man that brought heat, then had surgery and changed the game of baseball forever. That's Tommy John, and why he's not in the Hall of Fame, I have no idea. Tommy John changed baseball. It's the most famous sports surgery, and it's got his name on it. Earlier today, we caught up with the former left-hander who was on the Dodgers team, but he was hurt. So he wasn't able to play in the 1974 World Series, but he remembers it well. Here is my conversation with Tommy John. I'm doing fine uh, with all the stuff going on outside. It's here in Palm Springs. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, blue skies, it's going to be 104, 506, absolutely gorgeous. I'm doing fine. You know, we've been looking back at, at, at the A's greatness. If you look at 1972, 1973, and 1974, uh, you were on the 74 team. We're talking right now about the 74 World Series versus the Dodgers. The only problem is you got hurt at that point. You were having a great season. You were yeah, 13 yeah. and three, and that's when you hurt your elbow. Yeah, I was uh, 13 and three, 
uh, when I hurt my elbow. And uh, my big... Um, my big claim to fame is I got to throw out the first ball to one of the playoff games, or maybe it was a World Series game, right-handed, and uh, Joe Ferguson came up and, you know, I mean, I lobbed it up there right-handed. He came up and he says, well, that'll probably be the last time you'll throw a baseball on a baseball diamond, so I just want to give you the ball and wish you good luck and all that. And I said, okay, thank you very much. And then we went on about our way. But, um, you know, we had we had a good team that year with the Dodgers. We had a very good team. But the A's did too. The A's had a great team. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, 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 and the, the names in the series, we just recently talked to your former teammate, Steve Garvey. Uh, the names, I mean, you look at that, one of the greatest infields of all time with Russell yeah. and and the Penguin, Ron Say, and Davey Lopes and Steve Garvey and your guys' pitching staff. And then you look at the Hall of Famers with the A's, whether you're talking Reggie, you're talking Catfish, Raleigh Fingers would end up being the World Series MVP. A lot of big-time names in this World Series. Well, there, there were. And um, it was a fun series. And... It just shows you that in baseball, if you pitch well and you play defense, you got a chance to win a lot of ball games. And that's what the A's did. The A's pitched extremely well and they defended the ball very well and they had they had enough offense um, to sustain them. It was a good series. It, it really was. And the best team won. You know, when I think about your career, and this is when you actually have the elbow injury, and, you know, it's it, it's the most famous surgery now in sports, and it's named after you. It's pretty incredible. What was it like, that decision to take that chance with Tommy John surgery, and to have the surgery, what, what was going through your mind during that time? Well, I asked Dr. Joe because um... – I had the utmost confidence in him. Um, if he would have told me, Tommy, uh, you've got a German Shepherd dog. Yeah, I do. Uh, go take a pile of her dog poops and bury it back a second base at Dodger Stadium and your elbow will be cured. I would have done it. No questions asked. I would have done it because I knew Dr. Job had my best interest. And... Um, we tried uh, rehabbing and all that, and it just couldn't do it. So now we're getting at the end of August and the first part of September, and I call him up one uh, Saturday, and I think we're in Atlanta, and I and uh, called him up, and uh, I, I said, we've got to do something. You know, th- this is not working. Well, he said, um, we're, we're in Atlanta. Come in and see me tomorrow, um, Monday, at the office. So I flew home to L.A. and uh, went in to see him. And I, I said, you know, I, I want to pitch again. And I can't do it. He said, well, the surgery that I've got to do on you 
He said, I've never done before on a pitcher. I put ligaments in and uh, tendons to replace ligaments and polio patients in their knees and ankles and all that, but I've never done it uh, in an elbow. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in space. And I said, Dr. Job, if you do your job, I will more than do my job because he had told me earlier that in orthopedic surgeries, uh, rehabilitation is probably 60 to 70% of the success of the surgery. So I said, uh, you know, I'll do mine, I, whatever it takes. If it takes a year, it'll be a year. If it takes two years, it'll be two years. But I'm, I want to come back and pitch again. I'm not done pitching. And, um, so we set about uh, when we're going to do it. Well, let's have uh, this day, that day. So we decided on September the 24th or 25th. And uh, it was funny. My daughter, Tamara, was born on the 27th. So I had the surgery and I had to leave the hospital uh, two days later to go to the to be at the uh, birth of my first child. So, uh, you know, it was, he said, well, I don't want to let you out uh, it, back then. You know, now you have the surgery at nine o'clock in the morning and you're leaving the operation room at noon on your way back home. Back then you were in the hospital for a week because, you know, infection and all that. But um, uh, it, it all worked out. And like I said, I trusted Dr. Job more than any person because he was not only working for the Dodgers, but he had my best interest at heart also. And that's why I knew that he was the perfect guy. How many pitchers talk to you, reach out to you, and thank you for what you did, which really changed modern medicine and change the game of baseball forever. Are you sitting down or standing I'm sit- up? I'm sitting down. None. Zero. Really? Yeah. That's unbelievable. I know. I said, if I were having the surgery now, I, I would have my agent contact five or six of the pitchers that have had it and I want to pick their brain. I want a scouting report. That's how I pitched. I, you know, I mean, if I'm going into a playoff and we're playing a, an American League team or I'm with an American League team, we're playing a National League team, I want to get what does this guy do? Does he like to bunt? Does he like to do this? Does he go to right field? What's, uh, what does he like to do? I would want to know. I would want to ask Tommy John. What, what can I expect? Well, you can do this, you know, and this is what I've told when I've gone out to do speaking engagement. Uh, you can't speed the healing process up. It just can't be done. So it may take, it may take player A two months longer than player B and it may take player C a month shorter to get to where you can throw and you can't speed it up. And this is what everybody wants. Well, uh, I remember uh, Smoltz had it done and 
he was going to be the first pitcher to come back in like 10 months and pitch. And Dale Murphy told me uh, at the All-Star game, and I said, Dale, he may come back and throw in 10 months, but he will not pitch in 10 months. And I think he tried to come back and hurt his, re-injured his arm and had to shut it down and come back. And But it takes time for the body to heal. And then you go on about your business and uh, you pitch. Well, there's no question of that because you came back. You won 20 games in 1977. In 78, you won 17. 79, you won 21. 1980, you won 22. So you came back and you won so many games. You won 288 games in your career. And the last time we had you on the program, uh, you know, we talked about all the no decisions that you had. It, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how you are not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, somebody in there that does the voting, um, I, I know a lot of the sports writers, they, well, you weren't a dominating pitcher. What do you mean? I won. Yeah, but you didn't strike guys out. Oh, I didn't think it was the strikeout Hall of Fame. I thought it was the pitching Hall of Fame. You know, you get batters out. But I don't Somebody didn't like the way I pitch, and nowadays, um, geez, I, I, I think the last time, uh, that I was up for a vote, I came in last or next to last. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, it, it just, it doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't add up. I mean, cause you know, all those, uh, you know, how many no decisions did you have in your career? I, uh, 200 and some, I think I, I lead, I lead the major leagues in no decisions or I, I forget how many, but I have the most no decisions of anybody in, uh, major league baseball. And to think that after you have the surgery, which is now named after you, that you pitch all the way till you were 46 years old. You know, really, you're a treasure in Major League Baseball. I mean, the, the what you did, the guts that you had to have this surgery and continue on has changed so many players' lives. It is unbelievable. And you should be – everybody should honor you for that because if it wasn't for you showing the courage, having the surgery, coming back, and being a 20-game winner multiple times, who knows where we would be in Major League Baseball? Well, the thing that I – really like and I cherish is when I came back I pitched 13 years after the operation I, I never missed a start in those 13 years now that's that's unheard of you come back from this surgery yeah my my elbow was sore at times but I still pitched you know and I pitched through the through the pain but um, I, I never missed a start. <clears throat> so whatever Dr. Joe did, he did very well. Whatever I did rehabbing, I did it uh, very well. And with the rest of it is, is history. And hopefully it doesn't affect your golf game to this day. Oh, God, please. It's, um, I play golf like, well, 
Sandy Alderson may play golf better than me. That, that's how bad my golf game is. <laughs> well, hey, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for coming on. Be well. And once we get this uh, season going once again, we'd love to have you on. I, anytime uh, I'm available, I would love to talk baseball with you guys. It's fun. God bless you. Stay healthy. Tommy, that was awesome. Thank you so much. You're the quite great welcome. Tommy we'll you John. Wow. It really is incredible. How's this man not in the Hall of Fame, Cody? Like I said earlier, from 1976 till 19, when he ended his career, so from 38, 33 to 46, he won 164 games after the surgery. Now he won 288 in his career, and he had 188 no decisions. Uh, if you had, if you just split those no decisions in half of the 188, he has well over 350 wins. Uh, that's pretty good. He'd be up there with Maddox and, and Clemens and all those guys that have won over 350 games. It's a shame that he's not in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. And he changed the game. We talk about guys that changed the game, like Bill James and, and Billy Bean. Uh, Tommy John changed the game with the surgery in 1974. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, so he's 12 wins away from being an automatic Hall of Famer, and now he's in, you mentioned the career no decisions. I mean, a third of those take him to well over 300 wins, and he'd be in the Hall of Fame. It's just ridiculous he's not in the Hall. It, it's just, it, it really goes to show how these writers over the years change people's lives whether good or bad the power that they have over men who played in this game for a long time that writers control their ultimate destiny is whether or not you're in the baseball hall of fame writers makes me think of alan iverson practice what are you talking about practice Hey, you want to talk about guy? You want to talk about guys that uh, you know, people didn't like personality-wise. Something uh, I'm sure a lot of people didn't like AI. But hey, the answer's in the Hall of Fame, and you know, Tommy John's not four-time All-Star. They, remember, we were talking earlier about if you look at their awards they won. If you look next to Tommy John, he has you know four-time All-Star. I think the biggest thing for her, that hurts him, and he mentioned this because he mentioned wins and everything, and he has them, and he has the in the, the no decisions. But in 4,710 career innings, he only has 2,245 strikeouts. Now, I know he wasn't a big strikeout guy, but, I mean, when you when you have that many innings, you, you would hope that you have close to 3,000, but that's not the type of pitcher he was. And But he had the wins, and he had the, the war. His career war is over 60. It's 61.6, which if you go by the threshold, we always talk about of 60, and it's always – it never does pitchers any, um, you know, service. He should be in the Hall of Fame, and – he started 700 career games. His last game was on May 25th, 1989, at the age of 46. He just turned 46. That was his last year. He's now 76 years old, and uh, it's a shame because we probably won't get to see him going to the Hall of Fame. Ah, uh, that needs to be corrected. It somehow needs to be. I mean, it's just it it, it just doesn't make sense that. You're you're just you're you're looking at a man that's 288 wins, all those no decisions, and you're saying he wasn't a great pitcher. He did everything you required, right? Remember, 
Writers decide who goes into the Hall of Fame. Writers decide who wins the Cy Young Award. I mean, he did win 20 games. I mean, he did have a sub three ERA in different. I mean, I mean, this guy pitched for for a long, long time. You don't pitch that long if you suck, right? Uh, that's a fact. You, you don't make 760 starts. By the way, he played for the A's in 1985. Yeah, I'm looking. Pitching 11 games for the A's. He finished in the top three of the Cy Young twice. He did it. Uh, he did it. He finished in the Cy Young number two, two out of three years, where he finished second in 1977 and 1979 when he was with the Dodgers and then the Yankees. At ages 34 and 36. <laughs> it's just, it really, it really makes. It's just it, it's 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 a crime. Some of these guys that don't get in, it's just it's just a crime. Look at Del Murphy. And, we always talk with Del Murphy is one too. And how many of these people who have votes don't even cover baseball anymore? Um, I know people here in the Bay Area. I think it's a travesty that they have votes. I never see them at the Coliseum. You never see them. And they have votes. How, how, how are you deciding a guy's fate in the American League and you never, you never come over to the Coliseum and watch him play? I mean, that's just, to me, a travesty. And it's a reality. All right, coming up next, our buddy Shooty Babbitt. We, you know, we, we tell you all the time, we want to we wanna have familiar voices on. Shooty Babbitt's going to join us. Talk to Shooty about baseball. Talk to him about, you know, because hopefully at some point uh, we're going to be looking at the 1989 team. And, of course, Shooty remembers that. And Shooty also remembers the 70s. So we'll talk a little A's history with our man Shooty Babbitt next. Now back to A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. You know, I also want to get into with Shooty something that we have talked about, the four-man outfield. And I think it was Don Mattingly said it best. It's just guys are not trying to beat it. They're not adjusting. But it would be easy to beat. But guys don't do it. And at what point are players going what point are players going to make adjustments against these wacky defenses where there's easy hits out there for them. Easy. When are they going to make the adjustments? Because all you got to do is make the adjustment a couple times and they'll stop doing it. Is Shooty calling us or are we calling him? Shooty's going to call into us. He agreed to – I told I told, I text him when we went to break, told him to call in a few minutes, so uh, he'll be calling into us. But the four fun- Go ahead, sorry. Been a fun show today. I mean, Rick Dempsey's a legend. Tommy John, uh, Himbo. I I owned Himbo today in trivia. Yeah, um, he said he liked uh, the my my rebuttal to the whole Joe Mauer thing, so that was good. Uh, Rick Dempsey texted me t- back saying, "Cody, yes, it was fun. The first time I've talked baseball since the end of the year. Thank you very much." The great Rick Dempsey. We had him on for what twenty? That was one of the longest interviews we've ever done. Like him and McGuire I'm- were like two of the longest we've ever done. I mean, it was it was like one of those where so 
take you behind the curtain. I tape every interview. I run a stopwatch. And I put my phone down and we just start talking. I look down like 20 minutes. I mean, that's how much, you know, everybody wants to talk. You know, normally in a time where for someone like Cody, it's it, it could be tough to find guests. Everybody wants to just talk baseball. Let's talk baseball. Let's talk sports. We're doing it for you, the fans, to let you know that we're here for you during these times to give you a distraction. And that's what we're going to do. And we thank all the heads of the A's for allowing this to happen. Because I can tell you, I people reach out to me personally. People reach out to us on Twitter, thanking us for what we're doing. We're trying to just constantly provide you with something special during these times when you're looking for content. 15.6 million people watch the NFL draft. A virtual NFL draft. That's crazy. Not crazy is the greatness of Shooty Babbitt, NBC Sports California, Oakland A's front office, a longtime friend of the program. And Shooty, what we've been doing is trying to bring on familiar voices during these times because we know it helps heal heals the fan base, and they love hearing it. And, of course, you're one of the most familiar voices we have around this franchise. Chris Townsend, how you doing, my friend? It is really good to hear your voice. Uh, it is good to be on the program. Um, I must tell you, um, this has been one of the most humbling experiences I've ever been in through my life, and I've been through a bunch. But um, I can tell you there are a bunch of us going to step up at the same time and tell you that. We have a whole different understanding of life right now. But, man, right now the sun is shining and things appear to be getting better. Uh, we just got to keep on grinding and keep on complying and keep on doing what the people that know what needs to be done uh, keep doing what they say, man. But, uh, man, sure miss seeing you at the ballpark, brother. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. And one of the things that uh, NBC Sports California has been doing, and it's been great, is showing these World Series games, 72-73, and we're going to get game four of the 73 season tomorrow night. And, of course, the A's would go on and win in five against the Los Angeles Dodgers. And you you got a great perspective because as a kid growing up in Oakland, you were a young guy at this point. I want to say you're around 10 years old. What was it like? watching these 70s teams and how proud it made the people of Oakland feel and the East Bay when the A's would win three straight World Series? Oh, man. You know, as a kid, you know, we all played the same games in front of the house, uh, the strikeout games, the rundown games, the three flies up games. And while we were doing that, we were emulating the best players in the game, and we were fortunate to have the best in the game about 20 miles down the road playing every single night. Um, I was fortunate enough to have Cloudo Washington grow up in my neighborhood. So not only did I idolize Burke Campanaris, but I saw a youngster at 19 years old that didn't even play high school baseball get taken from a track team in Berkeley by Mr. Jim Gwynn and go on to star in the World Series for the Oakland A's at 19 years old, swinging a 36-ounce, 36-inch bat, which is unheard of. Uh, and he swung it like a club, man, but – you can name all the personalities, the players. Uh, it was an incredible group. A guy's ownership was out of his mind. He did it his way. But the bottom line is that they won, and uh, they fought 
on the field, in the clubhouse. But, man, when the game was on the line, they played like a team that was pulling together by one accord for sure. Who was your favorite player on those teams? Spur Campanaris, man. Um, here's a little guy who was doing big things. He ran. He hit for power. Uh, he played with an edge. Uh, he played like his life was on the line every time that he took the field. And lo and behold, um, I don't find out till later on that our birthdays were on the same day. I've gotten a chance to know him and meet him as a friend, work with him in fantasy camp. Um, I can't tell you how many times I pushed and jipped in line at bat day trying to make sure that I got my green, Kelly Green, Burke Campanera's bat on bat day, brother. So um, it was Burke Camp, it was Dick Green, it was Clyde on Washington, it was Reggie Jackson. Man, you can go Sal Bando. Man, it was it was an incredible group of guys. And don't forget about the special guys. You know, Herb Washington was a guy that was a world-class sprinter that couldn't spell baseball. But if you let him pitch run, he could steal a base as quick as anybody in the game had ever seen. And that's what he did. But that's the kind of group it was. And what they did throughout that three-year stretch, man, was just incredible. You know, we had Dick Green on the program, and he recently just had a birthday like you did, April 9th, and you share with Campy. Uh, he's 79 years old, and we were talking to him. This is a guy that was such a factor in the 1974 World Series, all because of defense. He didn't get one hit. He got the Babe Ruth Award. I mean, he truly infected this series with the glove alone. There was a time that uh, second baseman offensively um, during that era – uh, you didn't have to worry about swinging the bat. You just went out there and you flashed that leather, and that's what you did. You may not have drove many in, but you made sure that you saved three times as many. And Burke Campaners always talked about the great relationship that he had with Dick Green and how they worked so well together. And any ball hit far to his left that he knew he couldn't get, Dick Green would be right there to have it. And he enjoyed him as a double play partner. Uh, yeah, he was a fantastic second baseman, no doubt. And the teams that they took down, now the, 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 the 73 Mets weren't very good. They just got hot. I mean, they only won 82 games. And I, I remember watching game one on NBC Sports California. And when they, you know, Yogi Berra comes out and then they announce the rest of the guys, you're like, who? I mean, other than Willie Mays, but Willie Mays was done. He was 42 years old. But you look at the names that they beat with the Big Red Machine and then this Dodger team. These, these these rosters are who's who during the 70s. No question about it. I think I will probably remember um, the Cincinnati Reds World Series more than anything else because we had Joe Morgan, another guy who I idolized growing up, and George Foster and Bobby Tolan and Cesar Sedano, Johnny Bench, uh, man, Dave Concepcion, Pete Rose. When a team is good, brother, you can reel those names in with the quickness, man. And these A's were matching them mano a mano. And what they were running out there, Catfish Hunter and Vita Blue, Ken Holtzman, man. Let me tell you something. Uh, Mudcat Grant, Blue Moon Odom. And that was real baseball. You know, the sad part of all of this that we're going through right now, we're going to get through this. We're going to be a lot better for what we're going through right now as a country. But, man, oh, man. The essence of what we were able to live through, county as kids, and to become men and look back on the life. You know, I've been finding myself watching a bunch of Andy Griffith and Gunsmoke on TV, man. I don't know. That's like the only thing that's been gained my interest today because it was just 
good old living, good old folk. Men had a problem. They take it out of the middle of the street and settle it, and everybody go on about their business, man. You know, so it's 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 amazing where we are today, man. I look back at baseball. Uh, you know, I know Pete Rose made a big mistake, man, but he epitomized everything that was baseball was about on the field, man. And, you know, even J- Ray Fawcett, you know, a man that was bitter for a long time for what happened in the All-Star game, he even tips his hat and, top, and, and gives those guys a nod to the way that they played the game. And, you know, Ray Fawcett, our friend, if there was ever a real man, he is one, man. And uh, he played against those guys, and that was truly a great World Series for me. So Ken Korak and I have been doing a pregame show before every one of these games that's airing on A's cast and NBC Sports California. We do it from 7.30 to 8 o'clock, and we'll be doing it tomorrow night for game four of the 1974 World Series. And when we were talking about 1972, other than Pete Rose and your guy Campy, they were in their early 30s. Everybody else. Joe Morgan down on the Big Red Machine, Reggie Jackson, everybody on. They were all in their 20s. And you want to talk about a World Series where so many of those old World Series guys are in their 30s. Those are the stars. This was a bunch of guys, Shooty, in their 20s, in their prime or entering their prime. It's simply phenomenal. And for them to go on the, the stretch and the run that they did um, was also incredible. Uh uh, their names, I mean, you know that Cincinnati Red team. I mean, right following them, you start coming up with guys with the Nasty Boys and Eric Davis and, and uh, Tom Browning. I mean, some really good players coming through there. Uh, that's the great thing about baseball, man. There have been some great players that have played this game, but there's even greater players that have come along to replace them. Um, and I think that's why our game has been able to evolve as much as it has been because of the greatness of the players that are just simply coming on each year and continuing to fascinate you what they're able to do on the field after you never thought you'd be able to see something like this again. But I will tell you this, there's one guy. I don't know I'll ever see this guy, somebody impact the game the way that the guy that I played with and grew up with, man, and that's Ricky Henderson, man. I mean, just the way that he could just dominate a game and do things – when people were trying to stop him from doing it and they knew he was going to do it, it was just, it was just amazing to me, man. But uh, we've been blessed uh, to, to have the greatness um, here in the Bay Area with the green and gold. Even when the teams haven't been great, they've always been very competitive. And I think that's why we've had that strong fan base that we've had. We've got some people here that are so loyal that have been here ever since this team have come to Oakland and their kids are A's fans. And now the kids' kids are A's fans. So um, it's remarkable. Um, I hate to see the pause in the cause because it seemed like we were just gaining a lot of steam with the stadium and the things that David Cavill is doing to just bring this, take this team to a whole nother level. And, uh, but, hey, man, just as quickly as this stuff took over, hopefully it can blow out just as quickly. You know, one of one of my favorite interviews <laughs> in my career was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who I still think you can make it the case is the greatest basketball player of all time when you look at what he did in the NBA and the way he dominated college basketball. I asked Kareem, and it's, it's one of the great quotes, because people back then – and, you know, he was close to Bill Russell and and then Wilt Chamberlain. And he was asked, are you the greatest center of all time? And he said, you know what? 
I don't know who the greatest sinner is, but if we have a conversation, I should be in it. And I think about the greatest baseball player. You know, if we were to say who's the greatest baseball player of all time, and you're going to bring in Babe Ruth, and you're going to bring in Ted Williams, and you're going to bring in Hank Aaron, and you're going to bring in Willie Mays and Barry Bonds and now Mike Trout. I don't know who the greatest baseball player is of all time, but if we're going to have that conversation, Ricky Henderson has to be in that conversation. No question about it. Uh, my favorite childhood player of all times was Willie Mays, just because of how good he was in the way that he played the game, simply with joy and slim and uh, style and grace. All of that stuff that people swag that they talk about now, he did it all. Big time when it was on the line and he wanted to be there. There was nobody wanted to be in the spotlight any more than Ricky Henderson when the stuff was on the line. I think that's when he uh, played at his best. And uh, just to see him dominate, just the human physical specimen that he was, man. Uh, man, uh, it's it's like it's kind of like the basketball situation. It's like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. How can anybody argue what you just said? Here's a guy who had a go-to shot that I don't care anybody who ever played the game. They could not stop the sky hook. If he got it uh, uh, to the right, uh, to the left, sky hook in your face, uh, pimping back down the court. So uh, Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Will Chamberlain, um, man. We didn't get a chance to see them as closely as everybody else, and they didn't get a chance to see them. So once again, you know, that's what makes – it's like baseball. They change a bunch of rules in the game with the uh, – it's the replay and stuff. You're going to tell me how many fans didn't enjoy uh, the banter going back and forth on the BART trains about if he was safe, if he was out. You know he was out. You know he wasn't safe. He didn't make that catch. Yes, he did. You know, it, 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 uh, just the arguing at home plate, all of that kind of stuff. Um, just like everything else, though, you know, everything changes a little bit, man. But I'm waiting to see what's going to change now so we can get back because we had some rule changes, and I was wanting to see how they were going to affect the game with this pitching situation. So can't wait to get back started, man. That's for sure. No doubt. And one guy that I encourage everybody to go to his baseball reference page and look at his numbers, because I think for a lot of people who didn't watch him play, we only think of Hank Aaron and home runs. Hank Aaron still has the most RBIs ever in the game. He should have the most home runs, legitly. But what people don't know is he's third in hits. Only Pete Rose and Ty Cobb have more hits than Henry Aaron. You take all the home runs, you take all the RBIs, you take all the hits. There's nobody's stats like his. Uh, Dusty Baker talks about it all the time. Uh, he was fortunate enough to play with Hank. He was on deck when Hank broke the record. And Ralph Gar, another good friend of mine, that's a great friend of Dusty's. And once you get Ralph going to talk about Hank, you know, he, he gets upset sometimes about the uh, uh, lack of appreciation of what Hank Aaron was able to accomplish other than the home run. Bake always talking about how much Hank could rake. I mean, Bake kind of emulated Hank a little bit in his swing. If you saw Hank Aaron, he was a front foot hitter. He was a guy that really created a lot of leverage, never wore batting gloves, and all he did was drop hit. He didn't hit monumental blasts, those kinds that you see just go way back. He just hit blasts over the fence, with, and those kind that would just 
fence high that you thought that the outfielder might have a chance to catch, but before you know it, it was over his head. But, yeah, Hank Aaron was an incredible hitter, man. You know, two guys that I was early in my career that I interviewed and I was seriously nervous, one was Hank Aaron, the other was Nolan Ryan. Both times, you know, when you, you're calling and they pick up and you like, you, you're going to talk to them, you're like, because you know you're talking to a, a, an absolute legend. And that's why it's been so fun uh, watching baseball in all these different eras. And the one thing that I always, and I think from, from a pitching standpoint, watching all these hitters in the 70s with their closed stances, that's not something anybody would teach today. No, that's a whole nother level. I, I, there's a whole lot more teaching of mechanics and theory than they are of making adjustments, uh, approach, uh, because uh, you get attention by dropping head. It don't matter how you're getting it done. You know, scouts, people see hitters because they hit. I don't care how you get it done, but if you do it on a consistent basis, the last thing you want to do is change a guy unless you think you're going to be able to make him into somebody that you're dreaming that he might be. Um, if he's a big, goofy power guy that you know he's never going to be a really good hitter, but you know if you can get him to make some consistent contact because if he touch it, he can hit it out of the ballpark. But those guys that have not been home run hitters, most of the time they've been fighters. They've been guys that have been able to extend at bats. They can hit with two strikes. Uh, they will battle you. Uh, you don't mess with those dudes, man. So, no, you're right. Um, but when you saw the George Hendricks of the days, guys get in there that weren't afraid uh, to put their shoulder in there, uh, there weren't many guys. Uh, but you knew that you could have one half to plate and the pitcher gets the other half. And once you disrespected the pitcher, he will let you know if you were taking too much time on his part of the plate because that's the way the game was played. So, uh, yeah, it's changed a little bit. It's changed a little bit, man. It really has. Oh, no doubt about it. And hey, how about these slides in the second base by all these base runners that if you did that today, boy, uh, you, you're going to be getting fined. Part of the reason I got ran out of the big leagues was, uh, in Billy's opinion, was my inability to uh, turn a double play. And a lot of times it was positioning. When you're a guy that's being told where to play, I find myself running the second base a lot of times and not being there under control. Therefore, if you don't get a perfect throw, there's a lot of things that can happen. You got Don Baylor, Hal McCray, Dave Winfield, who I was unfortunate enough to get a chance to play against in such a short brief time, coming in there that made a living and being notorious for trying to take you out in left field, and that's the way the game was played. You get up, and you better get out the way, or you're going to get taken out. But, man, oh, man, the great part of being, playing second base and knowing the game and knowing how to play around that bag, you knew how to get up, and if you got up high enough, you knew how to get down with that shoulder, with that elbow, with your own cliques, and that was part of the game. But if you didn't, you got took out. Uh, I, I think it's unfair now because I just don't think you have to be very athletic to play around the bag. Guys have to slide early, get out the way, don't make contact. Um, I, I believe we give away outs that way. You're making it easier for the other team. You're making it easier for the pitcher. Uh, so, eh, you know, I'm just an old, washed-up, old-fashioned old dude with gray in his beard talking about the good old days, man. So uh, that's just what I saw. That's the way that it was. Well, Shooty, I, I, just to hear your voice, it, it's great to hear. And I hope all is well. And hopefully at some point we'll get baseball back and we'll tee it up and 
get a little golf going, but it's always great to hear from you and get your analysis as you're one of the best and be well, be safe. And we'll talk to you soon. Man, Tony, thanks for having me, man. I'm kind of never been in this position for, I don't know how many years, never in my life being at home this much and having time to do things around the home and just kind of reflect a little bit, man. So I guess you take everything with a grain of salt and that's what I'm doing right now. So, uh, but, man, yeah, I do look forward to it. I want everybody to be safe out there. I miss you guys. You know, I'm a hugger and a talker and a people's person. So this is killing me right now, man. So um, look forward to seeing everybody, but be safe. Take care, Shooty. All right, Tony. You got to. Thanks a lot, bro. The great Shooty Babbitt. Great to hear from him. And that's what we're doing every show. We're bringing on familiar voices. And uh, Shooty is a wonderful human being. He's a great guy. He's been a longtime friend. And uh, really good at what he does. He's one of the top scouts in the game. He's fabulous on television. You got a little buying or selling for for me, Commander? It's time for buying or selling. Sell, sell. Right now with Chris Townsend on A's Cast Live. So you you brought it up, and I'm going to get right to it. You brought up the great Nolan Ryan, the Nolan Ryan Express. Now, on this date... In 1983, we saw history. A record that stood since 1927 was broken, and that was Walter Johnson's record of 3,508 strikeouts that Nolan Ryan broke in 1983. Now, Nolan Ryan is the all-time strikeout king after 27 seasons. Uh, he only has uh, 5,714 strikeouts. which That's almost, it? Which is almost 1,000 more than second place. The Hall of Famer Randy Johnson is right there. Now, Walter Johnson is now ninth at 5,008 strikeouts. The next closest active pitcher to 3,500 Ks is the great Justin Verlander of the Houston Astros. Max Scherzer is the next closest after that with 2,692. And Zach Greinke is only trailing by less than 100 behind Scherzer. Buying or selling, no one will ever break 3,500 strikeouts again. I'm selling that. Why would you think you couldn't have a, another high total when everybody in the game is striking out? Because they don't pitch long enough in games. I'm just, I'm just using I'm, – I'm thinking because Verlander's I, what? 30, I understand that. Verlander's 37 years old. So, I mean, do you think he's going to get – you know, five, well, he's a 300. So, he has to get 500 strikeouts over the next couple of years to break 3,500 because he has 3,006 right now. I mean, he could do it if he's still throwing hard like he is now. And Scherzer's 900 behind, or actually 800 behind. He might have a realistic chance, and Granke's there. Kershaw can maybe get there because he's still young enough, but I, I just don't think that that number – that's a, the number that Walter Johnson has because no one's catching uh, Randy Johnson and uh, no one's catching yeah. – no, no one's yeah. catching Nolan Ryan. At all. I mean, uh, if you catch Nolan Ryan at 5,714, you're doing something God right in your God. career. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you literally have to play 25 years. Uh, well, yeah, Nolan Ryan did 27. Yep. You played 27 years? Yeah, 27. I mean, as, 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 I mean, the Cal Ripken number will never be broken, but that's a games played deal. If we're talking about accomplishments, whether you're talking Ricky stolen bases, you talk Nolan Ryan strikeouts, you're just, you got no shot at catching those guys. It's just not going to happen. Just like you know, one's ever going to catch uh, Cy Young's um, was it seven hundred and something? Oh yeah, games, that's that's or his uh, five hundred and something wins. 
has so, 511 wins. Yeah. Guys won't even come close to 500 starts. Yeah, that's also very true. Now, I read this yesterday, and I, I mentioned it to you. I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but back in 1932, Indiana governor Harry Leslie decided to stop and watch the Reformatory's baseball team take on a local semi-pro club, and one prisoner in particular kept grabbing his attention. His play was marvelous, both in the field and at bat. The Indianapolis Star later recalled he might have been a major league shortstop, the caliber of Pee Wee Reese or Phil Rizzuto. After another jaw-dropping putout, the governor had to know, who was this guy? A nearby guard had his answer. That's John Dillinger. Yes, that John Dillinger, the man whose spree of bank robberies turned turned him into the most wanted man in America, helped create the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and captured our cultural imagination even perhaps in death. Now, a lot of people said he could have turned pro. Buying or selling, John Dillinger chose the wrong career. (laughs) That's a great story. John Dillinger, the famous bank robber, could have been one of the great shortstops of all time. I, I love that. That story was so great. I was like, this is, uh, this is. if I don't get this that in is. buying or selling tomorrow, we can save it for forever because it'll never get old. Uh, we got to go. I, 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 you sent me You sent me that? Yeah, it was, it was a good story. Was, uh, I think it was MLB Cut 4. Um, it was on MLB.com yesterday. And I read it because right after you sent me the article about the uh, best players, pitchers never have a no-hitter. I, I think I responded with sending it back to you. I think I did. If not, I'll send it to you regardless. It's a, it's a it's a really short read, but it's really interesting. But that's all I really have. I'll save the rest for the, another day. Uh, just coming up next on Ace Cast, we're going to replay the A's 30th win from last season versus the Angels on May 27th at the Coliseum. Bassey gets the win against the only Angels pitcher last year to go over 100 innings. Do you know who that is? That wasn't our, our, our guy Trevor Cahill. That's our guy Trevor Cahill, the only Angels pitcher to go over 100 innings last year as a starter. As as we like to say after wins against the Halos, suck it, Rally Monkey. Uh, we, that was actually going to be our, our birthday gift to you. We were going to get you a Rally Monkey for your birthday. When it came, you when know, it, I could get like a Rally. Yeah, I, I should, and I could like do something to it and put it here in my studio. Yeah, it should, it should, be, on, it should be up there with all your bobbleheads. It'll just be the Rally Monkey. And my and my uh, and my album, Finley's Heroes. Yes, that, I, I love that album. Record. You can put it right next to it. Put it next to the uh, Josh Reddick Spider-Man bobblehead. <laughs> Coming up. <laughs> Don't forget, you're going to do the Legendary Moments pregame show tomorrow with Ken, and then we'll have at Game Four, seven thirty, presented by Budweiser. We'll see uh, after that. You will see Game Four of the 1974 World Series versus the Dodgers. Uh, you can listen on Ace Cast or see it on NBC Sports. California. Cannot wait. We'll see you tomorrow night at 7.30. Enjoy the rest of your day. Be safe. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.